The following podcast may contain spoilers, adult language, and conversations about situations not suitable for immature audiences. So listener discretion is advised. This isn't the Republicans versus the Democrats. We're in a hole economically or or we're in another war. This is more crucial than that. This is down to the line, folks. This is down to the line. There can be no more divisions among the living. They must be destroyed on sight.
All right, we're back. It's episode number 50, the official 50th episode of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. I am your host, Lee Russell, and I am joined by my co-host, Daniel Harper. Do not be lulled into the concept that Daniel Harper is your friend or family member. He is not. He will not respond to such emotions. How are you doing, Daniel? Uh... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, I, I am actually not, not a zombie, but I am a sociopath, so there is that. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Good stuff. We are hoping to be joined by Paul. Uh, we're waiting for him to show up. Hopefully he will show up because if he misses this one, he's going to be kicking himself in the ass. And we're going to feel bad about it too because we wanted him to be here because we know he wants to geek out about this movie as much as we do. Uh, and indeed, we are going to be talking about the movie that basically gave this podcast its title, Dawn of the Dead from 1978. And uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about that here in a little while. The first thing we're going to get into is what we've been watching the last little while. I happen to know that Daniel has not watched anything else uh, except for Dawn of the Dead. So I have one thing I want to mention, and it's something Daniel recommended to me last week, and that is Mystery Road. Awesome. Yeah, yeah glad glad to hear you uh, you watched that. I I kind of thought when I uh, described it to you, I was I was thinking, Lee... Lee is either not going to be interested at all, or he's going to immediately sit down and go watch this. So, uh, yeah. so Lee, what do you think of Mystery Road? Should we describe it to the audience first, or uh, make them yeah. go download the other episode again? Yeah, no, it, it's this really intriguing, as you said last week, slow burn. Uh, it's it's a two hour long movie. It's it's very long. The length of this movie actually really works to its advantage. This is a very well done. Uh, neo-noir kind of film, semi-western at the same time, just because of the environment it's set in. It's about this, would, would you say mulatto? Would that be the proper term? He, he's actually a uh, an aborigine. Um, he's, he's, he's a black man. He, he's either full or mixed. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so he's a, yeah, so he's either a half or full aborigine cop in uh, Australia in this very dilapidated uh, rural a part of Australia. I looked up the uh, town that it was in, and it's in, uh, I forget the name of the town because I didn't know I was going to have to talk about it on the podcast <laughs> until you just mentioned it. Uh, but it is in, I believe, New South Wales. So it is It is uh, kind of in there. It's uh, near Melbourne, but not like that near to Melbourne. It's, it's you know, a couple hundred miles from there sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's kind of my impression. Mm-hmm. And it was shot in a real kind of small area kind of a small town rural area kind of just on the outskirts of and now if you want to get to the other side of australia there's five thousand miles of deserts that you can yeah, cross yeah. sort of thing so um, so the plot so that, the, that's sort of the the setting yeah so the plot essentially is about this he, he he's essentially come back onto the force after being on leave for a while i guess like stress leave or something like that because of a really really violent uh, incident that happened and he was just like a regular cop at that point. He's he's come back as a, as a detective. Um, yeah, he went for his like training and like you know he went to the big city to mm-hmm. train and to um, get his detective shield. And then he's come back um, after yeah, yeah. a couple of years. Was kind of the impression. So yeah, so he starts investigating these murders. Uh, there's these murders on a stretch of highway outside of town uh, involving young women. A lot of them are from the uh, really poor section of town. Uh, These are all young girls who are essentially prostituting themselves into truckers, stuff like that. Uh, And of course, a lot of them are Aborigines. So he he, he wants to investigate it. 
Uh, of course, his bosses are all white. They don't want to basically stir up shit. Uh, they, they keep warning him that the more he pokes into this, the more there's going to be some sort of conflict between the whites and the aborigines in the area. And they're basically trying to clamp down on him and stop him from doing it. So he keeps uh, poking and poking and poking. And essentially the movie is about his struggle, everyone throwing curveballs in his direction all the time. The movie also deals with his uh, personal life, uh, his ex-wife, his daughter, who is uh, in the area that these other girls are in who were murdered. So he definitely has a very personal stake in this one. I was really impressed with how well this was done. Uh, like you said, it's a slow burn, great character development. You mentioned last week that uh, just just wait and you'll see this really well-known actor just appear out of nowhere in the film. Hugo Weaving just jumps into this film and is amazing. But not just him, Bruce Spence in a small part from the Mad Max films. First, I thought it was Bruce Spence you were talking about because I saw him first because he's the coroner in this. And I wish he was more in this film because the rest of the scenes are just him as a on a fucking telephone conversation. I was like, I need more Bruce Spence in this film. I think there's this sense, uh, just just to get on to Hugo Weaving just a little bit, there is this kind of thing where, you know, you watch a lot of movies, and as as people who watch a lot of movies, as you and I are, you kind of get that, like, oh, uh, Hugo Weaving is in this. Clearly, he's going to be an important character. Clearly, he's the bad guy. Like, that's kind of the immediate thing you think is, well, they wouldn't have hired fucking Hugo Weaving just to be some dude sitting at at the bar. So clearly, he's going to, be kind of a big, and, and it's Hugo Weaving, so you think he's the bad guy. And the movie plays with that idea. And I, and I think mm-hmm. that really, I think what's really clever about the way the movie plays with the idea is that this is a small town. If there are murders happening, it's somebody you know committing it. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, you know, there's some person who is either coming through town or someone that is living in your town who, is, who has done this terrible thing. I grew up in a, in a suburb of Montgomery, but a, a small town, you know, where you kind of know everybody. Um, I think you kind of come from an, a similar kind of area where you kind of just, you know, um, not, not big cities. It really uh, evokes that life very well. I yeah. think that the, the kind of economic deprivation um, is, is a big part of this film in the way that um, – these are people that are, you know, they're not living in poverty. They're not, you know, they're not starving to death. But there's just nothing here. You fall into drugs, or you fall into alcohol, alcoholism, or you sell your body for sex because that's all there is. There's nothing else to do. And I think that that kind of futility of, of what um, our lead character is trying to do and trying to be a good man and trying to, you know, save people, I think that that futility... It goes a long way towards playing this, even though it's not explicitly stated, it's there in the visuals. You know? Yeah. And uh, I, I, I got to say right away, like, this is on the short list of my uh, best I've seen this year so far. I mean, this is really good. <laughs> like, this, really, this, really good. This is, this is my favorite film I've seen so far this mm-hmm. year, I think, honestly. I doubt it will stay there. I suspect I'm going to see something I like more this year, but it's it's probably my favorite film I've seen this year. Yeah, I'm glad you recommended it to me, Daniel. Uh, I, I was really impressed with it, and it's on Netflix right now. Mystery Road. It's another one of those films that really uses like the uh, Australian landscape to its full effect as well. Like it, it just, it's everything looks both beautiful and deadly and, and oppressive at the same time. Like it, that, that is sort of the 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 running theme I get through a lot of Australian movies where. 
you got to kind of respect the environment as, as beautiful as it is. It can kill you in an instant. And I think a lot of Australian movies make that point really well. It's phenomenal. And uh, I mean, I, I wasn't expecting a lot from it, honestly. When I, I mean, I sat down and I'm like, Oh yeah, it'll be kind of a crime picture. It's sort of a Western. It's kind of a modern Western. There's a guy with a rifle on the cover on the, you know, mm-hmm. showing up on Netflix. I'm like, sure. Click. And then you get 10, 20 minutes into it. And like, this is really fucking good. Um, this yeah. is not some piece of genre trash. Um, I, I think it's it's just, it's astonishing. I almost feel like we're talking it up too much, not because it isn't this good, but I kind of want people to discover it and not realize mm-hmm. how good it is. You know, um, that's, well, it, it's one of those hidden gems. I think you know. I'm just I'm just gonna throw one more accolade out there for it. Um, uh, a movie I'm really fond of, an American movie that is also sort of a neo-noir, sort of neo-Western, modern Western kind of thing, is Lone Star from back in the 90s. This movie is as good as Lone Star. It's essentially the Australian version of Lone Star in a lot of ways, and uh, that's a big, high recommendation for me. If uh, listeners out there are familiar with Lone Star, then they should definitely watch this film, because... It's it's right on par with that. It's it's a great fucking film. Yeah, um, I'll just I'll just say while we're uh, since nobody actually put this on to listen to Dawn of the Dead, right? Like nobody actually. Nobody, no. Um, no, I uh, I've been listening to um, one of the reasons I I haven't really watched anything is I've been listening to podcasts, and I mm-hmm. finally caught up with the Serial podcast. Um, okay. The uh, the first season of that. It's a true crime. It's this guy who actually you know is in prison and he supposedly killed his like 17 year old girlfriend you know back in 1999 and the the podcast is all about the whether he's guilty or innocent about this woman who's like trying to dig into this murder and figuring out what's going on and all the twists and turns mm-hmm. and this is like the most popular podcast of all time sort of thing and uh i i never i mean i just sat down i actually i watched the making of a murder or the making a murder documentary mm-hmm. Netflix, and i people kept comparing it to this and i went i need to just sit down and listen to this podcast and I got like hooked because okay. there's this other podcast called Undisclosed, and it's like three lawyers who like dug into the case and are like actively like working to free this kid now. Oh, yeah. I know he's like he's like in his thirties now, but they're actively trying to free him. And I mean, in my mind, there's no way this guy is guilty. Like he literally got railroaded, and there's like evidence on the podcast. Like you can find in the Undisclosed podcast, they're talking about all the like fucking like crazy shit this guy, like the way he got railroaded and the way that they use completely contradictory evidence. And the only reason I really bring it up is that we're talking about like, we're, we're talking about doing like crime films and that sort of thing mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the near future. I sit and I think and I, I watch something like Mystery Road, which is a really good movie, in a, in a, but it, it really explores kind of the complexities of what it is to kind of like be a law enforcement officer and what is your role in this society and that sort of thing. In a very real way, the kind of serial phenomenon kind of explores that same thing because, you know, if you think about like how many like fucking stupid murder mystery shows are on television. My wife was sick last week um, and she started watching Criminal Minds on um, Netflix. <laughs> I was like, Criminal Minds, I don't know if you know the show, but it's like this, they're do. like criminal profilers and i mean she watches it just as dumb like i'm sick i don't want to think about anything i just want to sit and watch like endless hours of clever people catch murderers and that's fine but you think about like how dumb those shows are and how they completely without any kind of analysis at all just present like the cops the fbi agents as these 
pure white people, you know, who are out there doing like these amazing things and catching these absolutely horrifying serial killers and that sort of thing. And then you think about like what cops actually do, you know, yeah. and, and without disrespecting the police as a profession, the way that politically we use cops, you know, and the way that um, there are a lot of bad cops out there and, and that sort of thing. And you get into the more complexities of like what's going on. And just the whole the whole thing, Mystery Road, and then Serial, and then having Criminal Minds just always playing on the background, and then talking about crime films. Um, I think that's a theme I'm going to be coming back to in the next uh, couple of months here. So, in my opinion, crime shows have really uh, gone downhill in the last like 15 years or so. Like, I'll even cite CSI and stuff like that. Where, I mean, yes. There's been studies and stuff saying, oh, they're responsible for more people getting into law enforcement and stuff like that because, oh, they saw CSI and it looks really sexy and exciting. CSI is practically a fucking science fiction show, a lot of the stuff they show on that show. But stuff like Criminal Minds, where they're catching serial killers every fucking week and, you know, they have this crack team of experts and they have a boy genius <laughs> on it. And it's like, oh, for fuck's sake. There's like eight people traveling on like a, on like a G8 jet. You know, traveling around the country and like, yeah. uh, you know, uh, solving murders and you know, it's like how much? How much money? Like, what's the budget for this team? You know, can we can we alleviate some poverty and make it so fewer serial killers are created with That's, this money? I mean, you know, like, come on. It's like that team cannot possibly exist. This is fucking ludicrous. I wish they'd go back to like shows like Homicide: Life on the Streets because oh yeah, that yeah, show actually made an effort to show the real struggles of cops and treat them as real people with faults. And I love that show. And it was criminally neglected and destroyed by shit like Nash Bridges at the time in the, in the, in the fucking ratings. <laughs> Nash but, Bridges, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, I was uh, a big Law & Order fan back in the day. Um, and, uh, I mean, Law & Order has its problems. Uh, but mm-hmm. Law & Order is also a show that uh, kind of talks about... Uh, you know, it, it is kind of about this process of, like, how do we collect evidence and, you know, kind of how how these things happen and, and that sort of thing. But, no, Homicide is a great show. I you know, I always I always think whenever I think of, like, great TV shows, like, oh, I want to do a, an episode-by-episode episode podcast about that show. And Homicide would definitely be one of those shows that I can imagine doing yeah, yeah. weekly or bi-weekly Homicide, you know, and going through every episode bit by bit, you know. So. Yeah, I, I I love the thing I loved about that show is that it actually showed like the psychological effect that cases had on the actual detectives in the mm-hmm. homicide yeah. department, and the fact that it didn't give any easy answers or any clean resolutions to anything. It was always, you know what? Even if you catch the killer, you still got to live with the horrors of what that killer did for the rest of your life. And that that show was actually pretty earnest and pretty daring well, and brave for its time. Going back to this uh, complete tangent that nobody cares about on this, uh, <laughs> listening to this, Homicide obviously takes place in Baltimore. Like, also, I mean, David Simon went on to create The Wire, uh, so The Wire is is out there. And, but uh, Baltimore is where the uh, the killing that uh, the Serial Podcast is about took place in oh, Baltimore. Really? And uh, a lot of the fucked upness of that case is basically about the Baltimore Police Department, like complete, and the Baltimore Prosecutor's Office completely fucking this kid over. Um, hmm. So next week, uh, Lee and I will talk about how Lee sat down and listened to all twelve hours of the uh, Serial podcast. So uh, you know, look forward to that. I might, I might get into it. I mean, I, everyone keeps telling me it's great, and I just haven't fucking listened to it. But uh, I might, I might jump into it here at some point. But 
Yeah. yeah. And that's the last I'll say about this topic. So, uh, you know. So, sounds like the uh, sounds like the current Baltimore Police Department needed uh, Yapit Kodo as their uh, <laughs> <laughs> as their fucking police chief. Yeah, we're gonna get into it now. We're gonna be talking about Dawn of the Dead from 1978. Ooh. In 1968, George Romero brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. Dawn of the Dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. They must be destroyed on sight. When there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Dawn of the dead. Written and directed by George A. Romero. Hold uh, on, who? What's his name again? Romero, this obscure guy, he did like two films in the seventies. Yeah, you know. Wait a minute, that's that guy that directed Martin, right? That's right, that guy. Yeah, that 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 shitty vampire movie that no one's ever seen. You know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's no, it's no Twilight. It's no Twilight. Well, we'll, you know, we'll give it that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's no sparkly vampires in that one. Actually, Uh, didn't they just remake that as Twilight? Wasn't that like the? I don't know. <laughs> Martin wasn't uh, quite as keen with girlfriends as uh, those. Stephanie buttons. Stephanie Meyer really just perfected the Martin formula, wasn't that? Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, Dawn of the Dead, nineteen seventy-eight, <laughs> starring David M.G. as Stephen, Ken Forhey as Peter, Scott Reininger as Roger, Galen Ross as Francine, David Crawford as Dr. Foster. David Early is Mr. Berman. Richard France is the scientist, also known as Millard Roche in the script, our mascot for this, our mascot, uh, yeah. for this podcast. And Howard Smith is the TV commentator. And Tom Savini, special effects wizard himself in his first really big picture, credited as Motorcycle Raider, but I believe his, uh, I believe his name in the script is Blades or something along those lines. Uh, I can't quite recall at this point. But I'll just uh, do a little quick summary here. Uh, This is actually from uh, one of my old blog posts. Years after the initial outbreaks of the dead coming back to eat the flesh of the living, society is now quickly breaking down. The media is failing. Martial law has been declared, and the population has been ordered to leave the big cities and go to shelters. Fran, Galen Ross, a television executive, and her traffic reporter boyfriend, Stephen, David M.G., conspire to escape the chaos in a news helicopter with their friend Roger, a member of the Philadelphia police SWAT team. Along for the ride is Peter, Ken Forhey, also a SWAT team member, who Roger has just befriended after Peter was forced to kill a fellow team member who had gone nuts. As they make their escape, the reality of limited fuel and food and an immediate need for shelter hangs over their heads. They set down on the roof of a large mall, They discover that it's still with power and containing everything they need to survive. The only catch is they need to clean it out of the resident zombies, former shoppers returning from the dead and back to their half-remembered daily routines. 
and to secure it from any other zombies or less than honorable survivors trying to get in and take them all for their own. Now, does this film take place years into the zombie apocalypse? Was That's, that kind of what you were implying in the in the summary? Or they never stated that this was a direct sequel to Night of the Living Dead. As you know, like they, they weren't a, they weren't saying that. Oh, ten years later, here's where the world is from the zombie outbreak. Like I know I never got that idea. I always assumed that this was a society where this stuff was happening. Maybe for a year, maybe two years, little outbreaks here and there. And it finally gotten to the point where society was not able to deal with it anymore. It, 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 like, this is sort of the tipping point where society finally has woken up, but far too late. So I always assume that this is like about a year, year and a half, maybe two years into the zombie epidemic. It's just sort of probably started in small rural locations like in Night of the Living Dead. And then now it's finally hit the cities and it's finally happening widespread. The United States is just inequipped to deal with it like they're trying to scramble and deal with it at this point but they can't do it anymore and i think that's exactly where this movie basically starts off right no i i like your interpretation i just always assumed it was like contemporaneous with uh night of the living dead that uh, i mean even though it's 10 years later mm-hmm. in terms of when it was made that essentially like if in this universe everybody who dies becomes a zombie which, you know, we kind of get that. It's not like a bite from a zombie isn't what makes you a zombie. You just, everybody who dies just becomes a zombie mm-hmm. in the Romero-verse. Then in the cities is exactly where you're going to start. It's not, I mean, rural areas where fewer people die, you know, they're, they're more easily dealt with. It's, you know, in the cities where you have, like, massive numbers of people in a morgue, you know, that are in, in hospitals and stuff that are going to become the you know, kind of, ground zero for this stuff so yeah i always interpreted it as it's just contemporaneous with night of the living dead it might as well be like two days later or something well the thing is like i i say it's not direct sequel in in the in the sense that in the original one they make allusions to the the returning venus space probe that's probably brought some sort of weird radiation or perhaps a bacteria to earth that is doing this right in this film they definitely try to focus in on being like a disease that's transmitted by body fluids more than anything else so i'm assuming it's not a direct sequel in that sense it's it's you know it's it's more of a follow-up or even almost a reimagination of night of the living dead to a certain extent so um it's not the living dead with with money you know like not that much money but more money certainly yeah yeah, I, I just, I just never assumed it was anything but kind of the early stages. So I'm kind of fascinated by the idea that in your mind, this is like obviously a couple of years later. I like your interpretation. I, I do. I was just, and I'm sorry to to dig into that before you. No, no, get no, no. Talk. No, that that's that's good. I, I like that actually. But yeah, so I, I was always going on to the assum the assumption that yeah, this is not a direct sequel to Night of the Living Dead. This is a world where this is definitely a disease of some sort transmitted by people. So it started somewhere rural, and it slowly spread across the United States. And now we're getting to the point where it has hit sort of a, sort of a pressure point where it's in the cities now, and it's spreading just like wildfire. Like in, in rural communities, it would have been contained a bit more. It would have gone a lot slower. But as soon as it hit the cities, now it's just blown up, and they're, they're just unable to deal with it. Because if, if this was happening... And I think we talked a little bit about it in the remake when we did we, we reviewed in our first episode or whatever. The idea in that film that perhaps the media, the, the way the media is now, where 
people sort of half believe everything they fucking see in the media and there's a lot of bullshit. You would see a report on CNN about, oh, disease spreading in rural community and no one would fucking pay attention to it. The government probably wouldn't even pay that much attention to it. And then you get to the point where it's finally exploded and no one can deal with it now because it's, it's just gotten to sort of a fever pitch that uh, no one expected. And I think the sort of same thing is happening here in this one. Now, that was that was sort of the, always the assumption I went with in yeah, getting no. into this one. I, I really I really like your idea that this is essentially after some amount of time that this is just the you know society's been kind of moving along they've been dealing with it that that it's just reached a breaking point and this is just the complete collapse of civilization essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I like it. I like it because you see a lot of characters in this still don't believe that it's even happening. Like a lot of them don't don't accept that that the dead are coming back and, you know, eating the living. Like, a lot of people still probably believe, you know, oh, it's just crazy people. It's like, you know, random bands of crazy people in isolated areas doing this shit. You know, or they're believing, you know, oh, it's minorities somewhere doing something, you know, evil and, and nasty to us white people. They, they just want to, you know, just not look at it. And finally it's right up next to them and biting them right in the ass. Like, well, literally. we've still got we've still got SWAT teams that are coming in and like mm-hmm. uh, taking down buildings full of drug lords or whatever. And it is like, yes, that's a good thing if you've got like people, you know, killing people and drug dealers and stuff. Uh, we should deal with them. But it's also like it it feels like a a complete waste of resources if like society is breaking down because zombies are literally eating people. So it does it does speak to that. I, I kind of like that idea. I always assumed that it was, um, you know, the police are going around and just doing whatever they can. Like, they're stuck in their ruts. Like, that's what kind of where yeah. people are, is that at the beginning of the film, it starts off in the TV station. And I, and I think that what's really effective about that sequence is just how people are still trying to do their jobs. Yeah. They're at the very last moments before, like essentially the government's just going to take over and it's just going to be emergency broadcast from here on forward. Everybody's evacuating, but people are still like, have that like sense of responsibility to, we've got to get this information out there. And uh, Galen Ross is saying, no, we have to actually like verify that all these places were not sending people into death traps. Yeah, the rescue station. But the station manager is still just concerned with people aren't going to watch ratings. I'm still concerned with my ratings, which is just one of those, the the idea that people are stuck in these ruts and people are stuck in this, these patterns of behavior. Romero is doing something really clever here where Mm -hmm. he's, he's placed on the zombies as, you know, they're stuck in the ruts of their lives. They're, they're these half remembered things. The human beings in this story, even even the ostensible heroes, are kind of stuck in the same, yeah. they're all the same kind of patterns of behavior. And watching it again now and kind of looking at that, you know, a little bit more detached way. And I've seen this a few times now, but like really sitting down and watching it, I definitely was, was struck with the kind of mirroring that's going on with the, the levels of the what the zombies represent and how the zombies are represented or reflected in the uh, human beings of the story. And I'll, I'll mm-hmm. dig into that a little bit more as we, as we kind of move forward. But finally we do get to the uh, blockbuster uh, sequence, you know, mm-hmm. um, with the, uh, the SWAT team going in, which, uh, you know, is the, <laughs> the most pointless intro sequence uh, you know, like unrelated action sequence ever in a film. This has <laughs> nothing to do with the plot of the film, but it's also probably the greatest of all of them because it's it's literally this little self-contained short film, essentially. Mm-hmm. Some really great uh, gore effects, obviously. The shot where the uh, the dude is missing the foot. 
uh, like oh, reaches man. out to, uh, and he's gonna eat the guy. To me, that that might be the single creepiest shot in all of cinema. Like, for for my money, so many great moments and images during that during that sequence. Um, the uh, the zombies that have been uh, essentially left for for dead in the basement mm-hmm. not killed because like oh those are my family members or whatever yeah like, i can't bear to kill them and so essentially i guess they're just giving them de- meat you know they're just like you know all the dead people they're just throwing them down into the chute and letting the zombies eat them and the idea that they've got this like pen and the way that the the swat team members uh the way that peter comes in and he's just mm-hmm. like i just have to kill these the, these things and they're you know, he just has this revulsion towards not not only what's happening, but why it's happening. That that, yeah. that people can't bear to to let go of that, and they're letting this monstrosities live in the basement. And then, of course, there's also like that idea of like the thing that's buried in the basement, the the things that we don't talk about that are um, the the festering wounds underneath our society, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, again, just just that one sequence, that that one little you know ten fifteen minutes of this film in another film would be the point of the film. That would be mm-hmm. all you could talk about. That's how good that is. There, There is an amazing amount of stuff going on just in that one sequence. I mean, to start off, you see all the cops. You can definitely see their, the SWAT team. They're all overworked. They're, they're stressed. A lot of them are rookies and amateurs who are obviously on their very first assignment. There, there's probably a lot of them have probably ended up either dying or gone nuts or left the squad at that point. So this is kind of things you can infer from watching just just the sort of physical acting from the characters. They go into that tenement. There's obviously a, a standoff thing going on here where some of the men of the tenement have become militant and they're they're protecting not only the building, they're sort of protecting their sort of cultural identity to a certain extent because uh, the, the whole the whole crux of the uh, disagreement between the SWAT team and, and the people of that place is they're trying to keep they, they believe in respecting their dead so they're not destroying these zombie bodies they're they're keeping them in the basement they're feeding them you know and and I guess it's probably implied that things have gotten so bad that people are probably starving on the streets so a lot of these zombies are probably you know lower income poor people starving mm-hmm. to death and dying right the SWAT team goes in some of them are good people some of them are like the character of Wooly who is just uh, an abusive asshole who is looking for an excuse to shoot anyone he can. Particularly and you, and if their skin color is darker than his. Yeah. Uh, we'll just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And I, My gun points selectively towards melanin. It's just a thing. Like, you know, yeah. more melanin, I just, I want to shoot that person. It's just uh, like, oh. I mean, whoops. I mean... Look, oh, even yeah. when he, when he's, when Wooly is busting down doors and Roger tries to stop him... <laughs> You, you almost get the impression that, hey, because Roger's white, he's not going to waste a bullet on him. <laughs> he oh, wants yeah. to save all of his bullets for all the black people. And you see the resolution of it. A lot of the SWAT, like a couple of SWAT team members are just, you can tell they're traumatized by it. One guy kills himself, just blows his head off after one encounter in there with the zombies. That guy kills himself because he got bitten though, right? No. Or, or is there another guy? No, there's there one of the young guys who comes in with Roger and them, and they go into that place that Wooly busted into. He just kills himself because he was traumatized by it. He had oh. that he had that zombie without the foot crawling towards him. Zombie never bit him. The zombie it, it was just you know the horror of it made him okay. like. I, 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 I thought on. I thought he was bitten, and that no. was him like killing himself. Okay, my mistake. Then I apologize. No. So I mean, you definitely see the tension on these people. Like they're just. They're put in a situation. They're just they they're 
they can't deal with it. They're, they're not equipped to deal with it at all. Roger is a professional. He's one of the few sane people on the fucking group. He goes down the basement to try to, you know, try to calm down. Peter is down there after killing Wooly. Uh, they immediately, they immediately pretty much connect though. Like they're, they're fast friends. It's just interesting to see like they're, they're both, they both, they're done with it. They want to get the hell out of there. And Roger, of course, has an out because he's friends with Steven and and Flyboy. Fran. Yeah, Flyboy. But yeah, I, I just I just love uh, watching them going through the cleanup in the aftermath, uh, where they're down in the basement shooting the different zombies that are all been bundled up and left in the basement. You see the tension on their faces when they're doing it. Like you see those point of view from like the zombie point of view with the guns pointing down, mm-hmm. them shooting and stuff, and you can tell they're having trouble doing it. Like. It's it's a real problem for him. Romero has never been big on caring about performances and character for the most part. I'll get into into that more later, and as we talk about this, there they establish both of their characters like really well without saying much at all. There is so much more tension built in that scene, and so much more going on in the background of that scene, uh, just through the way the characters are emoting and how they're reacting to what's going on around them. And I think that's one of the better, not only just straight up action scenes, like I think it works really well as an action scene uh, or sequence, but also just, I think it builds the character and it builds attention. It builds the underlying anxiety and everything going on in the film, like really well. I think that it, it, this, this film jumps from all the shit going on in the studio to that. It's like two big scenes of, tension suspense anxiety it, it hits you over the head it throws the gore in it throws the exploding fucking head it's it's it, that two those two bites by the zombie up on the staircase there where she comes up and hugs the zombie i mean it's and, it's interesting the way that the film almost it's almost like romero's giving you all the gore uh, mm-hmm. here at the beginning it's he's giving you a big big dose of gore and uh, the, the kind of action stuff, the the, the straight up horror stuff, knowing that's what you you bought the ticket for, so that he can then kind of say, okay, and now I've got something else we're gonna go do for a while, and mm-hmm. we're gonna give you some more gore, but you kind of there's a little bit here and there, but then you kind of had to wait to the end to get the other kind of big like gore sequence, and so the film was almost bookended by its uh, by the by the by the like super violence, the ultra violence stuff, which I, I really love the way that he structures it um, because it's not like there's not more of it in the middle of the film, but the, yeah. really kind of the, the big, like aggressive in your face. Let's rub the audience's nose in this to, to some degree. Um, is, well, is yeah, it, end, you know? Apparently that was some of the intent. It was like, we're going to find oh, out. No, who I our think audi- it's absolutely. It, yeah. You know, we're we're going we're gonna to find out who our audience is. We're going to rub their faces in it right up the, off the bat. And the people who stick with us are the people going to watch the film for the rest of the film. Right. Back in the day, a lot of people actually walked out on this film yeah. Uh, even even critics walked out on this film after like the first fifteen twenty minutes because because of the just that that sequence in the tenement building like yeah. a lot of people's like I can't do it. <laughs> well, and you think about like how um, I, I know you watched uh, a few different cuts of this and mm-hmm. then you'll speak more to this. Um, but in doing research for this, I mean, you know, you look at the zombie makeup, or I look at the zombie. The, the first time I watched this, not. You know, I didn't. I came into this knowing it was a classic. Um, the first time I watched it, maybe ten years ago, um, but without really like kind of knowing why or anything, just knowing, oh, it's Romero. I'm I'm watching the Romero films. I'm watching Dawn of the Dead. You put it in, and you're just wow. They're both really effective zombie makeup kind of stuff. Um, particularly at the beginning. I mean, there's a real 
cartooniness. Like you look at mm-hmm. the, like the color, like the green face makeup. You look at like the bright, you know, blood and the the kind of you know tomato soupy kind of blood. Uh, there's a, there's almost a Looney Tunes element to to mm-hmm. kind of the way it's shot. One of the the comments I saw in kind of doing kind of the background research is how the Argento version kind of pushes a lot more on the action stuff. Whereas Romero's idea was much more, this is a living cartoon. Mm-hmm. It's super violent, but it's supposed to be, to some degree, kind of a funny or satirical or commentary on the super violence, um, which then plays into kind of where Rom- the Romero version goes. And uh, I don't know if you want to kind of use that as an excuse to now talk about the different cuts. but uh, Yeah, uh, I, I could do that. Romero, when he was writing this, he definitely wanted to be more of a comic book cartoon kind of exploration of this stuff. Like, he felt that was sort of the only real way to go with this. Uh, if, if he just went super dark, it probably wouldn't have worked as well. So he, he basically felt that it fit the sort of satirical edge that he was going for in the first place to make it comic book. Uh, I, I know Tom Savini has, has definitely said that he was not happy with uh, his special effects at the time. He was not happy with how he hit basically uh, a lot of the zombies in this. And a lot of them, of course, are just extras from the local area. Uh, A lot of the cast, of course, is from the local area in Pittsburgh. A lot of them, you know, you bring in extras. A lot of them were just, they they painted them gray, basically gray face paint. Depending on the situation, the lighting would reflect their faces as a different color or something like that. He, He was not happy with that. He was not happy with the blood either because he... He felt the blood was essentially akin to melted crayons as far as the consistency went and the color went. Because depending on the print you saw this, and I actually had a VHS of this uh, back in the day. The very first copy of this I ever bought back when I was a teenager was an Anchor Bay VHS of this. Or maybe I was a bit older, I can't remember. But still, the blood on that was not color corrected at all. Like I think a lot of the later DVD releases and stuff makes it much more red. There it was overtly pink. (laughs) <laughs> nice. So, so uh, you, got, you got a bunch of Klingons here, uh, you know, your shoes here. Yeah, really? yes, yeah. six, bitch. Yeah, that, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, no, I'm with yeah, you. Yeah. yeah, Savini was not really happy with that, but Romero basically told him that actually works for us. That, that's what we're going for. We're going for a more comic book kind of aesthetic sensibility. So that actually kind of helps it. And I agree. I think it really does help it. Like it, it, it makes you know that the violence is both serious but at the same time it's still it still fits the sort of satirical edge that this film is going for and i think it makes it a better film overall going into the cuts and i do have some notes here that i should say about these should i, should uh, I step away for 10 minutes while you talk about this or it, it, it won't be 10 minutes okay, okay so uh first off anyone who is a tape trader or anything like that will know no, that hold on, hold on. How many hours did you spend watching Dawn of the Dead this week, Lee? Okay, well, I watched the three main cuts of this. There are okay, three main... So six hours, roughly. Roughly six hours. Three three main cuts, and I watched them again with the commentaries. So I did 12, 12 hours. hours. Yeah. And okay. I watched the two-and-a-half-hour extended ball hours cut on YouTube, which is a fan cut, which basically encompasses all three of the main official, officially recognized cuts together into one movie. So basically they're taking all the different things from different cuts that you didn't see in each cut, putting them together in one big movie. 
really great job. Like, I am so happy that there's a nerd out there that fucking did this, <laughs> that spent the time to do that because it was quite an achievement. But and it, um, it's well edited too. I, I that's is. the version I watched. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm just gonna throw this in here because um, I had never seen that version, and um, I think you know because I just I just kind of went onto YouTube because you and I were talking uh, off mic like. What version do you want me to watch? Because I'm not going to sit and watch 15 hours of Dawn of the Dead. I've done it before, but I'm you know it's just, I'm just not you know. So if there's one you want me to watch, just tell me which one, and I'll watch that one. You said I don't care. I think I just picked one, and it like oh it's Cinema Hours. Oh that's the yeah, and then not really <laughs> thinking about it, just went that's the one I'm going to watch. And they're like oh right, this is the two and a half hour version of this, and then realized I actually have to ever watch this version. Uh, there's a lot of stuff I, I had missed from the, a lot of the details I'd missed. I'd have to go and sit down and watch all of them in a row, but this might be my favorite cut of the film, actually. Like, I really liked this cut of the film. Um, so, uh, apologies, I interrupted you. Uh, so, dig into the differences between the cuts there. The, the three main cuts, okay. So, the one the most most people are familiar uh, with, it is the 127-minute U.S. theatrical cut. And there's been several variations of that one. Like, you'll find... Essentially, this film, plus or minus a couple minutes here and there on different uh, VHS and DVDs around, like this one was passed around quite a bit. There's a 139-minute extended version, which is incorrectly called the director's cut. This was a cut that was made for the Cannes Film Festival. It was never intended to be released theatrically. It was not George Romero's preferred version, so it's not technically really the director's cut. Wasn't that really like Romero's, like, initial cut sort of thing like that was kind of the this early was cut and then... uh, this was pared down from the work print which romero claims was over three hours <laughs> and i don't i don't doubt it i don't doubt it at all i, I don't he, i don't at all i don't know he, he said the original work print of this was three hours plus and he cut that down to 139 minutes for the canes version and then we have the Dario Argento version. Now, a little little history here. George Romero was sort of thinking about doing a sequel to Night of the Living Dead for 10 years. He was sort of slowly getting the ideas together, but you could never get funding for it. Dario Argento was like, you come to Italy and write the film, I'll get you your funding, and we'll release it. The only catch is I get all rights to international uh, film distribution, and I get to cut the film the way I want, and I get to cut the soundtrack the way I want. Romero's like, okay, fuck yeah. So he goes to Italy and writes this within three weeks. The sort of final uh, European version, and (laughs) to call this the European European version is kind of a misnomer as well, because if in, in anywhere... Europe probably has the most widespread ver- variations of versions, depending on the censor boards in whatever country, right? Because a lot of countries cut this film to shit. Dario Argento's official cut of this is 118 minutes, and it's called the European version. So the differences here, essentially the U.S. theatrical version, which is actually the one I prefer, this is the one most people are familiar with, and I think this is the one that plays the best. The soundtrack there, that uses pretty much a half and half of library tracks. And that's from uh, Music the Wolf Library, which is a resource that a lot of films use for library tracks. But then the other half of it is essentially Goblin, which, of course, is in association with Dario Argento. Argento arranges a lot of stuff Goblin did back in the day, and Goblin recorded the soundtrack for it. The the, uh, sort of con film festival version was... Uh, mostly library tracks. I don't think, honestly, I, I can't recall too many Goblin tracks actually getting into that one. 
and then the European version, almost exclusively Goblin stuff. A few library tracks here and there. The most notable takeaway from that, uh, there's a scene where you see all the hillbillies going around and shooting zombies. U.S. theatrical version has the song by the Pretty Things, uh, I'm a Man or whatever. That is totally exercised from the European version. It's just like some generic country and western thing that they stuffed in there to fit it so that's probably the most overt difference also the musical cues are very different for the european version like some of them start like a couple seconds into a scene and the european versions uh scenes are different like although it's much shorter than the uh any of the other two cuts it uses parts from scenes that were not used for other scenes so it chops it a lot down as an action film, takes out a lot of the satire and humor from the Romero version because apparently that stuff didn't play very well for European audiences. They didn't quite get the American humor or whatever. So it's much more straight ahead fucking action film, like just bam, bam, bam. Do you think that's European audiences or do you think that's Argento? Uh, it could be Argento, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually thinking Argento was uh, cutting for European audiences because... I look at Argento's films and it's like a lot of his films are pretty fucking deep and they have a lot of stuff going on. And a lot of his films actually have satire and humor and stuff going on. Like he, he made a point in a lot of his films to have bumbling police officers and shit like that in a lot of his films. So I think he was cutting for what will sell well in other European countries other than Italy. I think that was probably his mindset. For right, that. That's fair. But um, should we talk about that hillbilly scene briefly since you uh, touched on it? Yeah, I actually do want to jump to that. I'll get your thoughts on it here first, if, if you don't mind. That very much is like when I when I think about the connection between Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, like that's really the scene where I'm like this. This is basically Romero revisiting that. And just like Mm-mm. that's where I imagine that's the group of guys who like stumbled upon that cabin in Night of the Living Dead. Like that, yeah. that you know, it's essentially Romero kind of pointing you back at that and like connecting those two films in this. Like that sequence has no relevance to the larger plot, except yeah. for like kind of showing you this world that's that's kind of that this is kind of happening in. But it's so visually connected and it's so visually like look at what we can do now with our bigger budget, look at what we can do now in color, look at what we can yeah. do now, and really pointing very strongly at that idea of, of this kind of, like, look at what the hillbillies are doing and look at this, like, look at where we're going with the satire as well. Like, because it, it does feel simultaneously this very broadly satirical and, like, I mean, it's funny, you know, like mm. these guys, like, literally killing zombies and, like, popping a beer kind of thing. But it's also, like, I know those guys, I know that's exactly how, like that's exactly how people were gonna would treat it. I mean, uh, not again the the Malheur, um Wildlife Preserve, which uh, mm-hmm. you know that that standoff ended um, just a couple of days ago. But yeah. like, imagine the zombie apocalypse happens; those guys are totally gonna be sitting around popping beers and shooting zombies in the head. Yeah. I mean, you know, be... it's that same kind of uh, macho posturing and shit, you know. But of course, they've got high-powered rifles, so they're, mm-hmm. they're very adequately prepared for the zombie apocalypse, for now. I'm kind of curious, like, what happens in that community, like, a year down the line? What, oh, what's going on? Like, that's the world I kind of want to see, you know? Yeah, I, I would, too. I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I know where it goes, though. I'm pretty sure it goes really bad, and they start killing themselves. Yeah. Uh, interesting about that scene is uh, the police officers and the National Guard people you see there are all real police officers and National Guard. 
uh, just out there <laughs> having fun for a couple days of shoot or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, by the way, Iron City Beer. Iron City Beer, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that's a now defunct brand, but yeah, uh, yeah, no, it doesn't but, exist anymore. But I, I definitely noticed it. I'm like, holy shit, man. Pennsylvania, yeah. right? I, if only there was someone from Pennsylvania on this uh, podcast. Yeah, where too. the fuck that guy is? Yeah, I don't <laughs> if, know. If, if he if he sends me a message tomorrow, so I thought it was Saturday. I'm gonna fucking kick him in the ass. But uh, yeah, uh, it's it's funny because uh, and that's just a little nod to uh, where Romero came from too, because the sort of production company that he was with, where they were doing commercials and stuff, they actually did commercials for Iron City Beer before they started making movies. So. Oh, yeah. that's awesome! I didn't yeah. know that. That that's yeah. yeah, that's badass. Like I, well, I mean, it it plays as an Iron City beer commercial, doesn't it? Like mm-hmm. you know, but yeah. this is you know where you and I like. I'm not. I'm not like a. I'm gonna go hang out in the woods and drink beer kind of guy. Like I just that's in you know. I'm not. I'm not a guy that owns a gun and that's. But yeah, that seems like a good time. Like hang out. There's a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> You know, your buddy, no, you know, hang out with your buddies, me. target practice, shooting zombies, pop a beer, drink some coffee, hang out with your girlfriend. Like, this, yes. this sounds like this. No, that's just, you know, you're, you're, you're not wrong. That, that totally is a beer commercial. It really <laughs> is a zombie apocalypse beer commercial, especially if you watch the U.S. cut with the Pretty Things song going on because, you know, they're, you know, they're walking around their guns and shooting zombies. They get their, girlfriends, you know, cooking up barbecue and stuff like that. And then it's like, I'm a man, I'm a man. You know, yeah. it's like... <laughs> I mean, it's such a it's such a thematically important sequence, mm-hmm. in, in a way. You know, in terms of... Because ultimately, I mean, jumping ahead, you know, the, the same impulse, it's like, oh, well, all we have to care about is ourselves. We're this kind of tight-knit community. We've got guns. We can just take what we need. We can mm-hmm. kill zombies and kill food. It's the same impulse that the biker gang is sort of following, and, and you know, yeah. and it shows you both sides in a way. And that is, you can kind of look at these these hillbillies, and as much as we might make the, kind of the class distinction about the hillbillies, yeah. they're kind of doing their thing. They're out there. They're surviving, at least for now. I mean, that's it. Looks like a pretty good place to be in a zombie apocalypse. And we can talk about kind of where that would lead, but at the same time, we kind of see how where that kind of impulse might lead with uh, towards the end of the film, you know, so. Yeah. I never wake up early in the morning Don't get home till late at night Don't believe in overworking And I never treat a
gambling fan Smoke the cigarettes until my throat is gone For settling down Or raising a family Just give me a room With music and dice That's the place for me I never like to lose a nickel Although I am a gambling fan Smoke the cigarettes until my throat is wrong Don't believe in living to a plan Cause I'm a man 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 And I'll have a lot more to talk about that when we get to the end of the film. We haven't even gotten to the mall yet. We're like an hour into this podcast. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, so they eventually get to the mall, and and this they're, is Moreau. We're, we're skipping mall. the helicopter blade, right? Okay, so then there's well, you know, we don't have to the, skip it. I mean, the guy I mean, with the high forehead, you know, yeah, and uh, that's that scene is totally exercised from the European version for some reason. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, but <laughs> maybe maybe just for time. I, I'm not. I don't know. I don't know uh, because it seems like something that would be explicitly in that. Because are the, are the little kids in that? The uh, they're, the in, they're, the, they're in the Italian so version. Yeah. So it's just the chopping the head off that's cut out of that. Yeah, pretty much. Wow, that's weird. Like, why would you do that sequence unless you're going to show the, you know, okay, well, whatever. I guess I guess Italians want kids to be shot on screen more than they want to see. Maybe Argento, maybe Argento just forgot to put it in. Like I, I almost <laughs> get that with all the different cuts of this film. I, I almost kind of get that feeling of like you know just like haphazardly, like you know, so like yeah. with tape and a razor blade, and then he cuts it together and he goes final print, and then you know, oh shit, I forgot to put that that two seconds back in or whatever. Well, we we should talk with the emperor because that's a good uh, sort of initial establishment of the tensions between the yeah. main characters because you, you get you get Steven who is trying to be the man, trying to trying to shoot and stuff, but he's just putting everyone in danger when he's doing it. Uh, he tries to save Peter at that one point and it's like Roger's like, dude, put your fucking gun down. I'll fucking do it and and they shoot the zombie or whatever that's coming into the little hut there. So immediately Peter's not too fond of Flyboy. He's like, you know, Basically, stay the fuck out of my way, or I'll kill you. Eventually, you know. Right. So I think the so, only reason he doesn't shoot him. I mean, there are two reasons. One, he still has that inbuilt morality kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And two, I need you to get to fly the helicopter. You know. Well, P- Peter's character. He's the way I look at it. He's the most sort of uh, rational and practical of the entire group to a certain extent. Like as far as survival goes, he's like de- he- he's definitely the best character. I mean, uh, no question. He's also mm-hmm. the most. Street smart, if you know what I mean. Yeah, those you know, those those dark parts of the street, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but no, uh, I was really impressed. Like the way he he is very much sort of the sort of the rational kind of uh, 
uh, no bullshit part of the group. Um, Flyboy is sort of the uh, awkward male who is trying to be one of the guys and trying to be the man, but fails at every corner because he's uh, insecure and unsure of himself. Roger initially is seems like he's competent and put together, but he's actually secretly unraveling under, inside, and he, he essentially becomes the uh, liability to the rest of the group because he breaks down and goes basically goes nuts and reckless and endangers the rest of the group. And Francine is the modern woman who is not going to take shit from anyone, who refuses to be left out of the conversation, uh, refuses to be told what to do by anyone else. I was I was quite impressed with that because uh, essentially Galen Ross, when she started acting in this film, she's like, I refuse to be a screaming blonde girl like Barbara was in the original Night of the Living yeah. Dead, right? So uh, she's like, she's not going to scream. She's going to fight. She's going to, because not only she has to think about herself, and actually she's got to kind of take care of Flyboy, uh, she's got to take care of an in, incoming uh, baby, too, within a few yeah. months. So yeah, This is all I'm going to say. I mean, I, I'm not going to dig into this topic, but, I mean, th- there is that. I think that Romero's heart's in the right place. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that even in Night of the Living Dead, I think that, um, you know, from kind of what I've read and I listened to commentaries, I think, and, and, pe- and him talking about it, the impulse to Barbara was just that he thought it was interesting to have a character just completely break down and uh, that the performance was there with that actress. And so that's, that's kind of where that landed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just gets read in this, like, I mean, it becomes this thing where it's like, Oh, and the only character who's like completely breaking down is your like main female character. Yeah. Congratulations. You've done a great job. <laughs> um, I, you know, and it is kind of like, I don't think that he intended it that way. I think that George Romero is on the side of the angels on this. I think in Dawn of the Dead, you do run into that, like, where, okay, Galen Ross is not, a, or Fran is not a uh, screaming female. She is not someone who is, you know, running off and, and going crazy. Uh, but it's, she is definitely sidelined in the, the action sequences. And uh, I, I think it played better in 78 than it plays in 2016. This isn't me trying to knock the film, but it's definitely one of those things where, you know, it, it does kind of become, would I recommend this as a, you know, like to my to my female friends as like look at how great this character is and it's like yeah no not really you watch the film for other reasons i think it's a great film but it's the only thing i'd really like say yeah you know for from my modern perspective it can be done better but um, yeah i don't want to push too hard on that because i don't really don't want to blame romero for it it's it's made in 1978 it is a product of its time that's all I, that's yeah. the only point I'm trying to make it with that. I mean, I'll just add a little, little bit to that. I, I think you can make the argument, though, that even, even Fran herself is as much as she wanted to be in the conversation, she wanted to be making this decisions as an equal partner with the rest of the guys. She also realized that, yeah, she's pregnant, so she shouldn't be throwing herself out in the front line because she actually has a baby to think about. And I think, yeah. I think that was a part of it as well. Although, uh, to be fair, I don't think a lot of that was thought about in the actual script. I think a lot of that actually came from Galen Ross more than anything else because she made she made it pretty pretty clear that she didn't want to be you know the screaming girl or whatever in in the actual script, and she might have been prob- perhaps written a bit more that way to some extent because you know if she was going to make that objection, then perhaps that was in the script at some point. And Romero, of course, was like, okay. Fuck yeah, we'll do it this way. If you want to do it this way, you know. And Romero's the kind of director who 
like I said, he, he doesn't care too much about writing character and stuff like that himself, but he's very open to the people that he works with bringing their characters alive themselves and in doing it themselves. So, I mean, he, he would have been totally up for that. Yeah. It's interesting how like Romero's very interested in his themes and the, the mm-hmm. kind of the politics and he's interested in the gore, he's interested in the action, he's interested in shot selection, and he kind of lets the characters really be found by the actors. And so it really does, I mean, I can understand, like, he's almost like doing, uh, like, improvisational stuff as far as the actors go. It really is, like, bring what you want to bring, and we'll kind of, like, adapt the character to your idea of what what this character should be, And uh, which I think is kind of fascinating. I I mean, I really need to, like, dig into Romero and, and, uh, like, rewatch all of his stuff again and and really dig into that aspect of, like, how he handles performances. Yeah. Now, again, I didn't want to dig into that issue anymore, um, but... uh, of course, in Day of the Dead, he he brings in the like much more explicitly militant, you know, kind of feminist characters, and I mm-hmm. I do feel like um, I think in the commentary on Day of the Dead, he even says I've spent my entire career apologizing for Barbara, you know, <laughs> which uh, you know I I get that I I mean I completely yeah. um, I completely understand both the kind of like he doesn't feel bad about it. I mean he does he's neither like really apologizing for it, but he's also kind of like saying like yeah that was kind of not the best thing. I'm. I. I need to do better in my in my future career. So, uh, and that's again. Um, I just had to bring it up. So yeah, I no, and, I kind and of derailed us on that topic. And then when they did the Night of the Living Dead remake, they made her a kick-ass action hero. So. <laughs> no, I haven't seen. I haven't seen that version. I've been uh, kind of avoiding it. Honestly, I need to sit down and watch it. Um, because you did a commentary track on that yes. one with your brother, right? Yeah. So yeah. I need to do that just so I can uh, listen to that episode of our podcast that I'm on. Uh, you so. might enjoy the movie better if you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, let's let's get to the mall. It's the Monroeville Mall. It still stands today. Um, it it is other than the stores. It's actually kind of largely unchanged to this day, to a certain extent. Like the the structure is pretty much the same. I mean, the skating rink is no longer there. That's a food court now, or something like that. But um, it was one of the first big indoor malls at the time. So it was like a sort of a novel thing to put in this film. You know, like it I was kind of new. It's, 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 this, is, this is something I was thinking about as I was rewatching it as I was prepping to do this episode. We're almost, we're, we're kind of at the end of the mall era now. Like we're kind mm-hmm. of past that, that kind of big mall. Like malls still exist, but it's definitely that's this idea of like they have, they're in the decline in like 10 more years. I wonder if we're even going to like an indoor mall is even going to be like, a they're thing, all, uh, you know? they're all strip malls now for the most part, for the most part, it, you know? And um, so, so there was this kind of era between basically 1975 or, I mean, 78 was still really early days for these yeah. things. So I'd so say 70, 75 to like 95 or something like that was sort of a big yeah. I mean, I would say, I mean, 75 to like 2000, maybe 2005, yeah, okay, yeah. you know, like you could like, like a, a good 25, 30 years in there to where there was this kind of real uh, ascendancy of the mall. There is that like when I, I mean, I guess when you saw it in the 90s or when I saw it, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, that line like, oh, this is one of those new shopping mall things. Feels mm-hmm. like wow, that's kind of a pointless line. Like what? Like why are you? It's like it's like uh, today. Like this must be one of those Walmart stores. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, um, what? <laughs> but at the same time, in '78, 
that was this new, brand new thing. Like nobody had, I guess people knew they existed, but it was something where you felt like you had to explain it to the audience, even if it's just in that one line. And I, and again, and I, I'm interested to see in 10 years, if, if it's almost the other way where audiences, like if you're 20 years old in 2025 and you're seeing this film and you just go, what is that giant structure? Like, wait a minute, there are these giant megalopolises of like, It'd be like a, it'd be like a Roman Colosseum or some shit. You right, know? right. Like, like, like this, like this. You know, I've never seen like it. All looks so new. Now yeah. they're 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 all like run down little shitty places. Like, is it this? Uh, what yeah, you, you, you don't buy all your stuff on Amazon? What the fuck? Yeah, yeah. Facebook has it taken over the entire. Uh, you know, it's 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 cool. Like they 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 land on the roof of this, and this the scenes where they look down into the uh, sort of upstairs rooms that they inhabit and the skylights and stuff like that, that stuff was all actually shot in a different location. Like, most of the film was actually shot on location, like the tenement building stuff, the TV station stuff was all shot on location. The inside of the mall, of course, was shot on location. But the upstairs stuff, this mall actually only had, like, a crawl space. But it was actually Romero seeing this mall and seeing that the crawl spaces had this, uh, they actually had an actual storage of civil defense like supplies and stuff like that. He's like, okay, that's a great idea. I got to do that. But of course, I got to make room for these people. So they actually built the sets on a different location for the in, for the upstairs portion of this, and that's where they shot that. the The scenes where you see them jumping down <laughs> from the fucking uh, from the fucking uh, skylights or whatever. It's actually the actors jumping off a fucking ladder in the in the actual. Uh... <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, Roger and and Peter are like, okay, we could do this. We could clear this mall out, and we could stay here, and we could survive for a while. And so they do it. They they set up a plan. They basically start clearing the mall out with zombies. They block the doors off of trucks. This is the part where Roger starts buckling under the pressure and goes wild and gets bitten for his trouble and ends up, you know, uh, putting the rest of the team in jeopardy because of it. At the same time, there's a lot of, like, really fun scenes in this sequence, like the the mall scenes, like, where they're shopping and stuff like that, and even the scenes where they're kind of cleaning up the zombies are kind of comical because the zombies here actually start getting a personality. You start seeing, like, the different zombies, like the sweater zombie, the nurse zombie, the ball player zombie, the fat zombie, the nun zombie. You see all these zombies. The Krishna zombie. You see all these zombies in the mall, and uh, they all get sort of get their little personality. It, it's it's really fun. Like, this is kind of almost a lighthearted kind of middle part of the film to a certain extent. Um, well, you, you, leave that, you leave that kind of big heady, violent, depressing, uh, oppressive, chaotic, uh, this is where the society is breaking down stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you uh, go into this, I mean, we didn't really talk about it, but the scene where the two kids are, are you know, where he, where he has to kill the two kids, yeah, that's dark. I mean, that's, yeah. like, like this is explicitly, you know, these are kids. Like, there's a reason that you don't see, like, kid zombies in a lot of stuff, because mm-hmm. this, is, this, is, this is a dark, dark idea. Tom Savini's kids, by the way. Oh, were they really? Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) Um, And then you get to the mall, and it's kind of like, this is a safe haven. You know, this is... And then Mm -hmm. you see uh, Peter and um, uh, Trooper there are like, let's go go have an adventure. 
Like let's yeah. go and let's go and like like it's almost like an adrenaline rush as much as anything. It, it feels like it's this. Uh, it's less like this is something we have to do. This is more like look look at how much fun we can have going down to the the mall and getting this stuff and like you know let's let's go have a lark in yeah. a in a in a somewhat controlled setting. Uh, a lot of the uh, just talking about another zombie movie for a second. The Zombie Land is, is a movie mm-hmm. that you know, basically trades on this whole idea. It's yeah, all about yeah. like how much fun it would be to be in the zombie apocalypse, and uh, so much of the kind of. Uh, cultural conversation i'll say around zombies you know what's your zombie survival plan which you know has become such a like geek hipster thing that it's just i want to punch people in the face (laughs) um you know it became such a thing for a while and it's just like uh i just you know the kind of cultural obsession with zombies and uh you know i just i kind of got tired of it i've gotten tired of it i don't even watch the walking dead or anything these days yeah me either it's i'm gonna catch up with one of these days and i'm sure it's it's uh, some of it is great. I mean, I've I've seen some of it, and I'm like, okay, I get why people love this, but at the same yeah. time, the zombie has just become such this culturally omnipresent thing, largely on the strength of this film in a lot of ways. You know, that mm-hmm. this this sells that zombie idea to such a great degree, and it's nice to see like this these long sequences. I mean, this roughly, um, at least in the version I saw, it's almost an hour. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's it's a it's a big big chunk of this movie is basically on these logistics that go from we enter the mall to the point at which we've uh, kind of cleared the mall or, you know, we've kind of moved the trucks, we've cleared the mall, we've gotten everything. It really does kind of leave the ideas behind. It really does. I mean, it's still kind of playing with some of that, but this is the fun and games portion. This is the, uh, we're just kind of goofing off. We're having fun with the location. We're having fun with the gore. We're having fun with, and and it doesn't feel like there are these big stakes mm-hmm. until, of course, Trooper gets bitten, and then suddenly everything becomes a lot more real again. Yeah. If I don't know how much you agree with my my tone argument there, but uh, no, no, I to- I totally agree. Like he he lightens it up quite a bit, and then he brings you right back down with with Roger getting bit, and you know his days are numbered. I mean, Peter even explicitly says like. I've seen people bit, and they don't last more than a couple days at the most. Yeah. So Roger does get the initial bite, and then when they're cleaning out the mall, he gets attacked again and gets his wound reopened. You, you could probably argue maybe he was maybe getting better before then, and then that was the end there. Like, that was it. Like, there was no going back after that. Who knows? Yeah, you, you get to that sequence, and this is actually my favorite sequence in the film as far as horror goes. I think this is the one true sequence in the film that is explicitly horror. Like, the rest of the film is much more a comic book action film to a certain extent. This is the one part of the film that still gives me goosebumps and gives me chills. They are listening to the last broadcasts on the TV. Uh, Dr. Millard Roche is in the studio with, with the guy. They're talking. They're trying to debate over what they should do with the zombie problem. The audience is screaming at them. He's screaming back at the audience. All at the same time, Roger is dying. He dies. And now they're waiting for his body to come back. And the stuff on the TV is going on. It's growing to a fever pitch. And they're just sitting there waiting. They're, they're not even really listening to what's going on in the TV. It's just background noise at that point. But it's sort of the last gasps of society. Like... You, you, you finally get it, and the characters finally get it, that the old world is done. There's no going back. These guys, it, it's over. It's totally over. Everything is gone. 
there's, it's a new world now, and they're going to have to start over. And just as they come to that realization, uh, Roger comes back to life, and Peter shoots him. And it's yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a, just a really sort of poignant excl- exclamation point on the whole scene. And it's one of the few things that, like, it, it just brings a real serious note and a real serious tone into the film. And I really appreciated it. I, I thought it was really well done, really tastefully done. I thought it came at the right time in this film. Take care of me, won't you, Peter? You take care of me when I go. Just try to get some sleep, man. Save your strength. I... I don't want to be walking around like that. Peter. Peter! Yeah, I'm here, man. I am coming back. I'm gonna try not to. I'm gonna try not to come back. I'm gonna try. They use maybe 5% of the food available in the human body. The kind of thing With that, that are... small amount, the body is usually intact enough to be mobile when it revives. What are you saying? I mean, you know, you scientists. Dummies! You suggesting... Dummies! Listen! Dummies! Excuse me. Listen, quiet, quiet. Shh! One wonders whether it's worth saving. It's worth saving. For all I know, the brains are already dead, and it's the idiots that are still alive. And I figured out how to stay alive, too. And I'm trying to help you, dummies. In your calm, helping way, you do irritate me. By the illogical way. Illogical hell. Illogical hell. I'm showing you a way that we can up the food supply 20 times. Food supply for who? For a whole specimen that is walking around there in increasing numbers. We should feed them. What else are you going to do with them? Give me an alternative. I thought you scientists could come up with an actual way to solve the problem rather than feeding the opposition. Doesn't make any sense. 
Well, I can think of one other alternative. I can think of another alternative, yes. Since they seem to congregate in heavily populated areas, and since we haven't touched upon our nuclear resources, why don't we drop bombs in all the big cities? You're probably serious. I'm deadly serious. What are the choices? They won't run out of food, young lady. That's the problem, you see. And they won't run out of food while we're still alive. These kind of things out. You know, the things that you're talking about here sound like just a bunch of people talking. This is not political rhetoric. We're not fighting. This is not the Republicans versus the Democrats. They got us in the hole economically, or we're in another war. It's more crucial than that. We are down to the line, folks. We are down to the line. There are no divisions among among living societies. At least let him finish. Let us know. It's really all over, isn't it? Quiet. Quiet. We've got to remain rational. Logical. Logical. Scientists always think in those kind of terms. It doesn't work that way. That's not how people really are. We've got to remain logical. We've got to. There's no choice. It has to be that. It's that of the end. Afterwards, it become it just becomes the three of them. Uh, Peter is definitely sort of ostracized at that point. Like he's just sort of you know he he just doesn't really have that much in common with these white folks. Uh, <laughs> well, there's there's a there's a world the flesh and the devil aspect. Yeah, almost. Yeah, yeah. Different. I mean, once uh, once Trooper is dead, and I wonder, like watching this again, I was like. Romero had to have seen the Wall of the Flesh and the Devil. Right? I'm kind of thinking, like, yeah. I mean, it's so explicitly based on that same idea. There's not the kind of romantic or kind of sexual tension necessarily, mm-hmm. but the idea that um, you're now in this kind of cozy apocalypse. You're now in this, we are taking the resources from the mall. We've built this little tiny sim- simulacrum of society in this uh, shelter. We have, like, if it was made today, they would have like a big flat screen TV on the yeah. wall. They would have like an Xbox. They would have a uh, like you would see, like this is very nice. This is fancy. This is very mm-hmm. um, you know chic by nineteen seventy eight standards. So this this is not thrown together and threadbare. I mean, you see kind of the the cans of food um, uh, in the background and the and the boxes of you know the the civil defense stuff, which sells you the reality of kind of where they are. Yeah. But at the same time, what they've done is they've dressed up this little environment and they have like nice beds and they having, there is this kind of process of seeing kind of how they've constructed this out of the stuff in the mall. Swinger pen. I mean, I mean it, it is, it is. Uh, I mean, but, it, but the idea that it's, uh, it's not just that, but it's a, it, it is like we're, we're play acting. We're rebuilding mm-hmm. society in this tiny little way, uh, which is exactly what happens in the world of flesh and the devil, yep. where you get this uh, bit where we have reconstructed our little tiny piece of society out of the, the old world. But we've also brought our own prejudices and our own personality conflicts and our own uh, just our own biases back into this. And, and we can't get away from that because that's something that's built into who we are as, as people. And then uh, that kind of carries on. You kind of see the way that that happens. And they start to try to make the decision to kind of figure out what they're going to do from here. And, you know, you see some time passing. And then once you kind of think that maybe they've gotten comfortable 
And once you think that maybe they're starting to uh, kind of overcome some of these difficulties, that's when uh, they get invaded from the outside, yeah, which I think is a, is a really uh, interesting moment for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know how much of it is uh, just the extended cut. I'm not sure I, because I haven't seen the uh, theatrical cut in a while. Mm-hmm. But you spend quite a bit of time with the uh, the the kind of commercialism stuff in yeah. the in the uh, uh, the extended mall hours cut. You spend a lot of time uh, watching them rebuild. You spend a lot of time like the fun sequences, playing the video games in the arcade. Um, you know, she goes ice skating. You see them yeah. uh, kind of having fun. You see, you see a lot of this. Uh, they, they go shopping. There's a lot of time spent shopping. Yeah. Um, it's interesting how uh, we skipped over it, but there's that line at the beginning where they say, uh, you know, this must have been an important place in their lives, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, again one of those mirroring things because, you know. The implication being we're making this explicit criticism of these commercialist impulses, which the mall represents. This brand new giant gleaming mall represents these terrible, terrible commercialist impulses. But then you also see our main characters do the exact same thing. This is Mm -hmm. who they are. That, that they yeah. want to go shopping and have fancy things, and this is how we construct our reality. And we literally constructed our reality and our comfort level around these these same, you know, kind of consumption. That's all. There's no more room in hell. What? Something my granddaddy used to tell us. You know Makumbo? Voodoo. Granddad was a priest in Trinidad. He used to tell us, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Um, they even go and play with money. Like, who cares about yeah. money anymore? But they go and, like, grab a bunch of money, and uh, Peter says, you know, who knows, maybe we might need it. And it's like, fuck you, like, you're not. <laughs> you're this is, this isn't it. just, you know, what are you talking about? I mean, I would do the same thing because, like, yeah, if I could handle, uh, if I could have, you know, a hundred grand and, and throw it in a bag and take it with me, who knows? Maybe I run into somebody who's going to take that as currency ten years from now, but <laughs> You know, realistically, it's it's just such a it's such a silly moment, yeah. and it's even um, the idea that they're play acting at society is even they walk down the little uh, the ropes in the yes. bank, you uh, know, which is such a funny little moment. Where you know, the fact that Romero takes that time to like shoot that and show that to the audience, and and you know, they are still trapped in their own little you know rat race of of society, and then it gets invaded by Tom Savini. Tom Savini um, and a host of other bikers, some of them real bikers from a local yeah. biker club. Although they, all they the pro- look real. I mean, it looks like. I mean, these. That's that's one thing that I really appreciated about this and the the other sequences is you know you've got your kind of actors and then it's just mm-hmm. like people like they yep. really do seem like people. So they make a point to have all sort of like the major bikers that you see, like uh, with the exception of one or two of them. Uh, most of them are actually 
part of the special effects crew and the rest of the production crew. So you have Tom Savini, uh, who is pretty much the major one. They they invade the mall, like you know they they radio they <laughs> they catch on the CB that oh there's someone in the mall. You know hey just let us in. We we just want to come in and you know see what's in the mall. You know and uh, oh there are they only don't... three of us. Yeah, there's only three of us, and all of a sudden the crowd starts laughing. Fucking shut up, dude! Oh, you fucked up real bad, and we're coming for you. And so they break into the mall, and then you get more sort of uh, an extended scene of kind of uh, joking and hilarity. Like they're running around putting like pies in the zombies' faces, and yeah. just treating the zombies as crash test dummies, essentially, and and running around. Um, it isn't until Peter and, uh, well, actually, it isn't until Flyboy decides, I got to defend this mall, that shit really starts hits, hitting the fan as he starts shooting at them, and then they start retaliating, and that's where stuff really starts uh, escalating. And I think that is that is sort of the uh, sort of main crux of the, of the character development in this film. Uh, they get to the point where Flyboy is the weaker one who cannot escape he's not willing to leave the trappings of society that they've built for themselves in the mall whereas fran and peter can actually leave it behind and go and so it's essentially flyboy seals his own doom and he seals the doom as far as the mall goes i really like that i i like i like that i'm not i'm not disagreeing with that i i think that for me i see it as also because he, during the uh, the airport sequence where he's uh, you know kind of shown up as being not mm-hmm. a real man by you know like he can't shoot as well as the yeah. trained police officer SWAT team members uh, can fire a gun and therefore he's not as big of a man you yeah. know um, despite you know all the other stuff that that goes along with that but at the same time like here he is he he almost has to prove like i'm going to defend my hearth and i'm going to defend this thing that i i own and this thing that i've uh, developed and all this sort of thing and this is my place and i'm going to defend it from these bikers despite the fact that maybe they could have just hidden in the uh they could have i mean uh, who knows i mean ultimately i mean well they 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 made they made a point of building false walls and stuff in the place to hide themselves. Right. I mean, there is that kind of like, I can understand the, uh, the question of, you know, the bikers know they're there. Mm-hmm. Eventually, if they really wanted to find them, they could go and like hunt through the place yeah. and find them. But I'm kind of thinking um, they wouldn't, but, but I, you know, you don't get that sense from the bikers. You get that. No. They just wanted to come and like take shit. And um, there's also just that element of, uh, uh, and this is something that Peter brings up kind of early on when Flyboy is like, "Oh, come on, I have a I have a license for this this chopper." And it's like, "Yeah, are you are you covering the news right now?" No, <laughs> we fucking stole this chopper. We you are you're a fucking yeah. thief. We're all fucking thieves. You gotta admit that to yourself. Like Peter's very realistic about like mm-hmm. you know we are we are we have abandoned our society, and yeah. I'm okay with that. But don't pretend like you're on some moral high horse here. Yeah. Gotta find fuel. Maybe closer to Cleveland. No, we gotta stay out of the big cities. If there's anything like Philly, we may never get out alive. We may never get out of any place alive. We almost didn't get out of here. We're getting out of here fine, Peter. Just as long as there's not too many of those things around, we can handle them easy. It wasn't one of those things that nearly blew me away. We've gotta stay in the sticks. I mean, there's bound to be more little private airports upstate. There's the locks along the Allegheny. 
fuel stations there. State, private. No, those are probably still manned. We don't need those hassles either. We're just out after scavengers and looters. Oh, you got papers for this limousine? I got G-O-N-I-D, so does Fran. Right, and we're out doing traffic reports. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. We gotta find our own way. The bikers are not, like, they don't have any less of a right to the mall than Peter mm-hmm. and, the, and the, than our four protagonists do. Like, there's no reason to prevent them from taking what they want from the mall, like, from a, like, we own the mall standpoint. But Flyboy feels entitled to it. But, but Flyboy kind of feels entitled to it. Yeah. And he says, you know, this is, this is my place. And uh, he feels like he has to prove something, and he gets killed for it. Yep. Which uh, you know, and uh, ultimately leads to the ruin of the whole thing. Because mm-hmm. I think even at the end, like I mean, if if uh, you know Flyboy had not, uh, even if he'd gotten killed, and then like one of the bikers had shot him or something, and he hadn't, uh, it's he who eventually leads to the yeah uh, to, to the hidey hole. Like I think that really, even at that point, things could have like ever the bikers would have left, or maybe they would have. I don't know, but. Eventually, maybe you could have like made some kind of deal. You could yeah, have made some kind of Fran and I, um, I think, I think, I think at the worst, like the bikers would have left, and Fran and because once they started shooting at the bikers, and a, a bunch of them started dropping, they were they were pretty much ready to leave that fucking place because they got to the point where the zombies started overrunning them again. It was like, okay, we're we're the fuck out of here. So it would have been if if they had killed a Flyboy. As a, as a zombie, and he hadn't led the rest of the zombies back to their hidey hole. Peter and Fran realistically probably could have cleaned out the mall again and yep. sealed it up. So, yeah. Ultimately, it does kind of come down to you know what what is you know what do we own and what do we you know what yeah it ultimately ends you know uh, Flyboy's insecurity ultimately ends to uh, destroy not only his life but but kind of depending on how you want to interpret the ending. The lives of his uh, of his other two compatriots, mm. you know. Um, so, yeah, and, I, I kind uh, of interpret it as like there's no way these two have it, they they died ten minutes after the end of the film. You know, it's kind of <sighs> well, and I'll just get into that for a second because the original ending of this film did have both of them die, and there's there's some dispute of, of whether this was shot or not. Uh, but uh, apparently, it was shot. It's just the effects parts of this were not shot. But Peter does shoot himself in the head, and Fran eventually sticks her head up into the rotary blades and chops her head off in the helicopter. And actually, the reason that gag was used later with the chopper zombies, because they didn't use it with Fran in the ending of the film, and the exploding head early on in the tenement, that is actually a Fran head with hair put on it and black face paint put on it. That is a prosthetic head for her. So they didn't throw anything away in this film. <laughs> they definitely used everything. They used every part of the zombie in this yeah. film. Yeah, I'll, I'll go into uh, a couple little, uh, couple little trivia things here. So this was released in uh, Italy as Zombie. It's, it's better known there. And, of course, its success led to uh, Lucio Fulci, uh, re- renaming his film Zombie as Zombie Two, and uh, that that sort of sort of kicked off the whole zombie craze in Italy and the sort of gore horror craze in Italy for quite a while. D- this was filmed during the winter time in uh, in uh, Pittsburgh, so uh, during Christmas season, it would, the production was actually shut down because they were they were doing it in the mall at nighttime before the mall opened, <laughs> and then it was just wasn't cost effective to try to take all the mall fucking Christmas decorations and shit down and put them all back up. 
Can you imagine trying to do that every night? Like, oh god, I don't even want to think about it. And they actually damaged them all when they were shooting too. Like oh. there was some damage because like, they had the biker. I had forgotten they... all the shit they do. Like they're driving yeah. cars in the mall. They're like yeah. the amount of blood, the amount of shit they break. And then you got this whole biker sequence. You've got hundreds of zombie extras. Yeah, the funny thing, it wasn't the bikers who damaged them all either. It was like some of the extras. The extras who notoriously were, you know, they would stay in their makeup all day and go to the bar and get drunk in their makeup. Uh, a bunch of drunk extras came back and like smashed up like one of the pillars in the mall or something like that, driving into it or something <laughs> with oh, like, like a goat cart. So, so that was like one of the few things that actually... They had to pay for, I guess. Uh, when this was first released, uh, or before it was released, the MPAA threatened to impose an X rating if Romero didn't make cuts. Uh, Romero didn't want to make cuts for the film. It because... was Galen Ross's nipple, wasn't it? That was that was what they were threatening. No, it was actually the violence. That... Uh, I'm joking. No, no, I, I know. But, uh, but the X rating, he didn't want to, this to be associated with hardcore pornography. So um, he released the film with no rating, basically. Although all the advertising in the trailers said anyone under 17 shouldn't show up, even though there's no explicit sex. Uh, funny little trivia part with Galen Ross, uh, when she, she actually uh, lied on her resume for this film. <laughs> she she put all this, these skills on her resume that she could do, like, including ice skating. And she actually hadn't ice skated since she was a kid, so she had to like, take lessons be, between, the, between shooting times before she got on the ice for, for her shots there. Uh, actor did she Joe... really injure herself? No, I don't believe that... she did. No. Oh, okay. No. I, I thought I had heard that, but you know. Uh, Joseph Plato uh, or Palato, who uh, would later be Captain Rhodes in Day of the Dead, he's in a sequence that is uh, sort of cut out of the U.S. theatrical part and also the Italian. It's like totally exercised where uh, the where they're stealing the chopper. Uh, they encounter uh, uh, some police officers and stuff who are you know loading supplies onto a boat and getting away. And, and then there's this really cool sequence. It's only in the extended cut, um, at the sort of Cannes Film Festival cut, where uh, the police officers ask them if they have cigarettes. And they're all like, no, we don't have any cigarettes. We don't smoke. And then you see them up in the, in the fucking chopper going up and they're all smoking. All of them smoking, yeah. That yeah, was awesome. a great moment, yeah. Yeah. I was uh, watching a sequence going, I don't remember this. Man, I feel really, and now I'm like, no, 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 it wasn't in the earlier cut I watched, so that makes sense. Yeah. Also, uh, the reported budget for this was $1.5 million, but it was actually quite a bit less. That was just kind of flubbed. Uh, Richard P. Rubenstein, who was the uh, producer, admitted that uh, the amount was inflated for foreign buyers. Uh, the actual budget was between $500,000 and $600,000. So they really did this on the fucking cheap. Uh, That's amazing. Yeah. Like, you watch this and you think, there's no way you could do this for even, even adjusting for inflation. That's like five million dollars, you know. Like, yeah. and uh, I'll just make a little quick note here on the uh, releases for this. I'll also, say like the budget. We said the budget. Uh, it grossed five point one million dollars in the USA alone, and fifty five million dollars worldwide. So it was a major success. It was the most successful of his uh, Dead series as well. But it's the, the best uh, of the Dead series. I mean, no. Oh, question. I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, I uh, love Night of the Living Dead, and you can't, like, I cannot overemphasize, like, how amazing that was, particularly for 68. But this is definitely the best of the, of the what, five well, now? Yeah, Six. The, the way I look at it is um, Night of the Living Dead is sort of the bridge between the classic and the modern horror movie in a lot of ways. Like, it's yeah. really sort of the, the leap forward into the modern horror movie. Dawn of the Dead is one of, like, 
the first like bona fide classics of like modern horror movies as far as yeah. I'm concerned. So the US theatrical cut uh, was released in high definition and on Blu-ray format in 2007. The edition, of course, I own is the ultimate edition from Anchor Bay from uh, back in the day. And it has the three main official cuts as well, as well as a bonus disc on it. That, as far as I know, that still hasn't been released on Blu-ray, uh, which it really should fucking be. The, the, there's also a Blu-ray in the United Kingdom from Arrow Video, which has the the- theatrical. It, it has the other two cuts as well. And uh, I guess some of those are out of print at this point. So, But uh, you, you could probably still find them. I mean, you, 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 there's a multitude of basically just US, U.S. theatrical cut alone and different releases from different companies. So it's almost out there as much as Night of the Living did is at this point. So it should be hard to find. It's and still under can... copyright, but only barely. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> oh, yeah, I should, we should talk about the soundtrack here for a sec. Um, this is one of my favorite soundtracks of all time i mean this is one of those ones that is constantly in my head like every once in a while like it'll just sort of come up like i'll just start humming it or whatever you know the the goblin stuff uh more explicitly than the library tracks of course and i just i really love it like there there's been like several official releases of the goblin soundtrack and then there's all these fan releases of like the library tracks and the goblin stuff like there's a couple that do like the whole complete everything that you hear in the fucking film pretty pretty extensive and and i like it all like it's so influential that i mean even in Shaun of the dead they use like a couple cuts from from it for 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 Shaun of the dead and everything so i don't know if you have any thoughts on the soundtrack at all but uh i not i mean uh for me it doesn't i mean it's a great soundtrack obviously Uh, it's not i don't i don't have any complaints about it uh it doesn't uh strike me as like wow what a brilliant soundtrack although it is but it just kind of like for me there are other things i'm thinking about i also haven't watched this a hundred times the way mm-hmm. i think you have you know? <laughs> um you know it, it, it doesn't stick in my head in quite the same way but uh i think that's more just because i just haven't repeated it as many times as you have so um yeah, you know. yeah that's fair um, but no i don't really have any i i wish paul were here um because i'm yeah. sure he would have many more thoughts about the soundtrack so and, uh, um, I do like the almost Looney Tunes quality to some of the uh, the the like when the zombies are like on the uh, escalators and that sort of thing. Like the the long sequences of uh, when when it does kind of become kind of a living cartoon in that kind of middle third or not even third that that kind of middle half almost. You know, it, it kind of uh, yeah, uh, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of almost almost it pushes almost to that overly broad thing. Like it's yeah. like just this side of overly broad. It's all that. Um, it's all that mall music. Like it, yeah. they, they, he picked like Romero picked some pretty good library tracks here that like really fit that sort of mall music kind of motif. Like that just really goofy, mind numbing, <laughs> really bad music that still like it, it's like an earworm that sort of just creeps into your head at the same time. And that music stuff, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I, I think it works really well, and I, uh, of course. The, the one that we use for our theme song here on the podcast, the gonk, which at the end, like kind of just kind of sums everything up. Like the zombies have taken them all over again and uh, they're just goofing around and doing their usual shit they were doing before our heroes came in and cleared them out. And yeah, it's, everything's back to square one. Back. And then that, that, that one zombie now has a uh, assault rifle. You know, so <laughs> the fucking gun zombie walking around with a fucking rifle. Then he, 
Jesus Christ. And, and I've forgotten that moment until I rewatched it. And I'm like, my God, that's such a, like, and he does, there's no point to it except just no, to have it there. You know, it's just a joke. And of course, uh, if, if anyone's like that much of a fucking scrutinizing nerd, look, go, there's no way that zombie could be in there. He would have been killed in the initial call. He wouldn't be in there. He appears three times outside, and then he appears inside. That doesn't make any sense at all. Um, was it the whole point that the bikers come in and they the zombies then enter the no, mall? No, but again? there 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 was there were zombies that were in and outside of the mall. Like if you actually, and I, I'm sad to say that I've actually read on this, but if you pay attention, like some of these zombies, like there's no possible way they could have been in and outside the mall and okay. in the times that it's shown, like they would have been killed in the initial call and never come back. You know. Fair, fair enough. Okay, fair enough. You know. Yeah, but uh, that's just the sad fanboy. Hold on. Is there, is there is there is there actually a fanboy accounting of every single individual zombie? I think and, there, like, yes. shots they're in, and yes. so we could actually sit down and like do like a uh, like a like a little uh, dartboard or like a like a like a little map like a hex grid with uh, all the different placement of the zombies so mm-hmm. we can actually like reconstruct if, the sequence. If, if, if you if you track all the zombies then this movie makes no sense at all it can't possibly happen essentially well it, but that really just plays into the uh, the kind of uh, perceptual chaos that mm-hmm. is the film like the fact that the zombies don't actually make sense actually kind of plays to the inner like madness of these characters mm-hmm. and how they are slowly like losing grips on uh, their their kind of matrix of possibilities uh, perceptually um, yeah <laughs> no, it, it has nothing. It's it's a low budget uh, zombie picture, you know. Come on, 
We got this, man. We got this by the ass. All right, so we were lucky enough to get Paul, but this is the next day. We were recording on Friday, and uh, Paul couldn't show up for Friday, so we have him here now. And we still have Daniel here as well. Uh, we, we've actually been on air since last night waiting for Paul to show up, so it's been a whole 24 hours. Well, at least they're Day dedicated. two of They Must Be Destroyed on yeah. site. They have I really have so to go bad. take a shit right now. It's going to be like the first 26-hour podcast ever done. Right. It's going to be awesome. That's okay. Uh, but yeah, Paul, when was uh, when was the first time you saw Dawn of the Dead? Oh, I saw Dawn of the Dead probably when I was nine, nine or ten, something like that. I so, was watching Night of the Living Dead back, you know, before I could even remember. My parents were watching it, but uh, I remember renting, having my mom rent me Dawn of the Dead when I was about ten. So it was like 2005. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> it. Yeah, somewhere around there. Obama was in. I, I'm, I'm sure. So it was probably, <laughs> yeah, it was somewhere in there, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, but it was on VHS. So yeah, I, might, f- I might still found a retro store to get it from. Yeah, the yeah, first one good. the first one I had was the uh, Anchor Bay VHS. And uh, at that point, they still hadn't color corrected the blood. So the blood was still pink. Was, was mm-hmm. the blood still pink on your, your version that you saw? Oh, that's so long ago. I could never remember. <laughs> not, even, not even close to remembering. It was weird because Dawn of the Dead for me was always a weird one because I, I watched it a few times growing up, but I always got, went like, yeah, I don't like this. I don't know. It's just something about it I didn't like because I think I was so attached to Night mm-hmm. that I always just go back to Night the whole time. But after a while, especially when you watch the big extended, un, you know, uncut version, the one that's over two hours or something long, you know, you start yeah. getting a little bit, you know, you, it kind of grew on me and grew on me and grew on me. I still love Night, but, but Dawn is probably one of my favorites. Absolutely. They still is too much, you know, drama, everybody shouting and angry. So it's a little bit too much for me, but yeah, it's still a, it's still a good movie. That seems to be the general consensus for Day, although I would I would disagree with it personally. Uh, I, I think eventually we'll get to that film at some point. Maybe maybe oh, for yeah. episode 75 we'll do Day or something like that. Who knows? There you go. But, uh, yeah. Okay. That makes but, sense. Uh, yeah, so what's your sort of uh, general sort of overall thoughts of uh, Dawn of the Dead, if you, if you want to take some time oh. to talk about it? George Romero being George Romero, he always puts his little uh, spin on, on the times and what he thinks about society in the film. I mean, I'm sure you've already covered that. I didn't I, mention I, politics I, at all, Paul. Yeah. I was, it was completely apolitical. All I did was talk about all the great did you kills. Just, the you probably just, called, you just talked about the blood, and then you talked about that one scene where you can kind of see Galen's tit. That, yeah. that was all. That was that was it. That, that was I mean, actually brought up for two hours. Yeah, straight up. Yeah. Now I'm so it. pissed I missed it. You know, because that is gold right there. Um, That's but, the reason oh, to watch the film, really. You know? yeah, yeah, really. Actually, the only reason I watched the film is watching John Appleus look like a Puerto Rican. That's yeah. basically the only reason I, I watched the film. Yeah, Martin blow himself. Blow all their asses off. All their Puerto Rican <laughs> nigger asses off, yeah. and I'm like, "Whoa, what's happening? What's happening right now, Willie?" Then, you he, then he rushes out. So many fucking pigs, man! Those pigs everywhere, man! <laughs> Jesus Christ, there's so many pigs! Oh no, is it? It's Jesus Christ, there's a thousand pigs. That's it. Yes. <laughs> Jesus Christ, there's a thousand pigs. Uh, overall, I think the movie's great. The most fun parts is watching the the TV, the TV news reporters mm-hmm. talking to each, yelling at each other the whole time. I always always enjoy that. I, I'm trying to think as I as I go as I talk, but the, those those parts, the you know, just the yelling when the guy keeps on talking about about you know, get back on the air, get on the air, mm-hmm. you know, we're staying on the air. I'm like I love that the chaotic newsroom. 
obviously just the whole scenes of the film are great. I actually have, for the one part of the film, where they look down when they're over Johnstown and they see all the rednecks and they say the rednecks down there must be loving it. And, they, and I do love that part because that's exactly what I would be doing right now. I'd get together with everybody <laughs> in my community that I know and we'd be shooting people and having good times and drinking beer because that's exactly what we do because we're rednecks. I actually have an old Iron City beer can from the 70s. Right on. And I take it out now and again from my cupboard and I sit with it. And, I, and it's like I'm with them. I'm having this little moment. I'm having this little redneck moment. It's great, you know. Sitting I mean, in the I, chair put my, there and, uh, I put my boots on with no pants and, you know, I just sit there and I, you know, shit kicking. And it's good times. I like you're it. Just, you're thinking to yourself, but I'm a man. Yeah, but I'm, I'm a man. man. You know, and that's <laughs> I, I must say, when I rewatched that scene for this podcast, I thought of you, Paul. I was, I was like, no, oh, this Thank is you. Paul's. Home, really, you know. Yeah, this is my home, and and the night, the best part about the uh, Pennsylvania is, and, and the, less, this is just me anyway, maybe. But when you see it filmed, you know it is Pennsylvania. It's one yeah. of those things. And I've actually driven through many portions of that 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 the part that part of the state many times. Well, that's uh, that's something I wanted you to speak on because I know you've been to the Monroeville Mall. So, yes. uh, what what is it like today? The Monroeville Mall is a lot different today. The, the only thing is that, that remains is literally if you go to the parking lot, the structure of the mall has changed because there's uh, different stores added okay. to it, like a Barnes & Noble, so it's not that kind of you know Super Bowl shape anymore, that big that giant like kind of square. It's definitely uh, grown out, but uh, the giant lights in the parking lot are still the same. Right. And the rooftops obviously are obviously the same. The one thing that, that never changes in a mall that I've ever been in is the corridors that lead to the mall. If you ever know that that little section, that like in a thirty-yard mm-hmm. section that leads to the mall, they never redo those. So those are this exactly the same they've been. They're exactly <laughs> the same. The, unfortunately, they just recently took out the well. The well is no longer there anymore. Okay. The bridge and the and the pool, the pond, there that's gone. J.C. Penney's where they shot the film is gone. I think this is uh, pertinent to whatever the the film. So I'll say it. Uh, when they when they took out uh, the when they renovated J C Penney's and turned it into a movie theater, the first film they showed in the movie theater was Dawn of the Dead. Well, so that is, that is good, yes. And over by the security hut, they do have a, like a little plaque, that, you know, about Dawn of the Dead. So I mean, the the mall does recognize its zombie heritage for the most part. When the Evan City Zombie Museum which was in the Monroeville Mall that moved to Evan City, they actually got a hold of the elevator from Dawn of the Dead, which, of <laughs> course, David, you know, David... Uh, David he out, Yeah, he, yeah. Uh, he came out as the best zombie ever. And, yeah, doing, uh, his, uh, doing his Lon Chaney impression. Yeah, he yeah. was great. I loved, I loved how it, the, the gun was just there. It was not... It was that a, gun would not there. leave his finger, yeah. <laughs> no, and his... I, I, he, he, did never, he never sprained or broke his ankle, so he was, yeah. he was, a, he was a trooper, I'm telling you. They took the elevator and they they took it apart and they sent it over to the the zombie museum. When they did that, they had to piece it apart. Well, there's a, a sliding door that goes in and out of the actual elevator. There's two doors and the one slides inside the other one. Well, they took it apart and I actually got a chance to go back there and see the elevator all apart. And they showed yes. me this. They're like, "Look, we found squibs from the from the movie that were never oh, clean really? because they were yeah, there was actually live squibs." That were dried on the inside of the elevator that were never cleaned from when the older the older gentleman gets shot in the head in the elevator, right huh. next to the doors. It blew through there, and I got to see real blood from Dawn of the Dead. Oh, that's awesome! Or real <laughs> fake fake real blood, obviously, yeah, yeah. but it's still. So I, that was a real cool moment for me. I got to actually see that. 
And that, when they put the amazing. elevator together, yeah, when they that, get when they a, put the elevator yeah. back together, you'll never see it again. It's gone. Yeah. So hmm. I kind of got I, I got a little special glimpse into the dawn of the dead. I didn't touch it. I wanted to. I wanted to touch it. <laughs> <laughs> a little piece of Dawn of the Dead, just you know. Has yeah, any has anybody ever met uh, George Romero? By the way. No, I haven't. I'm pla- I'm planning on meeting him this year as long as he doesn't die. Yeah, well, he's getting up there, definitely. Um, who, have you met anyone from the original cast? The only person I've met from from any of the George Romero films was Tom Salvini, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I've also met Bill Heinzman. Okay. Not only that, you know. So, um, but they do a day, a night, day dawn now. That's a new festival they have in Evan City. Mm-hmm. I missed it this year because of things going on, but they have Ken Four. He was there. I mean, everybody that could have been there was there. So I'm definitely gonna go over there this year and see everybody. That's the plan. Nice. Uh, I, I saw an interesting piece of trivia after I we had finished recording uh, last night for the podcast. Um, I was I was just looking up Roger there, uh, Scott Reiniger or whatever his last name is. He is actually officially. A prince of a province of Afghanistan. I saw that too when yeah. uh, I, I was reading about him. And His, like, yeah. yeah. One of the guys that the man who would be king was based on went adventuring through Afghanistan and set himself up provinces there, uh, Gahar or something it's called. And and then he basically established that everyone in his bloodline for from here on then is officially a, a prince of Afghanistan, you know? So 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 apparently somewhere along the along the way he's he's in a, he's a prince of Afghanistan. We got Afghanistan. We got yeah, we got this. it by the ass. We got yeah. it by the ass. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah. Oh God, that's great. Um, going back to the movie, I mean, did you know that the, basically like all the army people and the police officers in the in the redneck scene were actually real police officers mm-hmm. from Pittsburgh and stuff? I mean, that that is great. That is one hell of a thing. You could probably not do that so much anymore. No, and I think that's one of the greatest things about Monroeville Mall is they shot it during Christmas, mm-hmm. so they actually had to tear down the whole mall every night, only shoot for a few hours, and put everything back the way it was before the mall opened. Yeah, uh, they actually suspended during like the three, like main shopping weeks or something of Christmas. They mm-hmm. did, they just shut down the production because it's like. We're not taking down all these fucking Santa Clauses and decorations and shit and yeah. putting them back up in time for the yeah. to open. Yeah, it was a they shot it in three months, I think, something like that. It was about yeah. three months it took to do that, and that's a hell of a thing to do. And it was great because what they actually did was uh, the zombies would get bored and play in the mall, mm-hmm. and they would go into the photo booths. And in the photo booths, they would actually take zombie photos of themselves and then replace the photos in the photo booths. That you for people to see with zombies, yeah. <laughs> all the kids and the the happy faces with zombies. Can, they actually can you imagine shopping at this mall like during the day while they're in like finding? Like, I, I wonder if you could like find somebody who was like, oh yeah, I shopped at uh, I shopped at that mall during yeah. the, uh, the 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 seventy seven seventy eight uh, Christmas season. Yeah, and I, I slipped on a errant uh, squib that someone had left <laughs> in JC. Right. Yeah. I found I found some zombie makeup, you know, stuck in a corner or something, you know. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, imagine God, being an employee and coming in in the morning and being like, "Fuck, now I gotta like." Or that they... squib that hit the escalator and it comes up every time it goes oh, around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it must have been really bizarre because, yeah, like there were so many locals who became extras in zombies, and we were talking about earlier with uh, Dan and I. Um, 
a lot of them didn't take their makeup off, like the, especially the ones who had like prosthetics and stuff done on them. Right. They weren't taking their makeup off, so they they were you know sleeping in their makeup. They're coming in the next day with their makeup on. They were going out and drinking with their makeup on. Uh, they were you know eating at restaurants with their fucking makeup on. So that yeah. must have been quite quite the uh, time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah no, day. definitely. And then then I w- I heard the story about the that one day they actually got all the uh, heart patients that came in for walking. They were going around, and one time they came around the corner because it's a long two-story thing. They came around the corner, and there was you know a hundred heart patients and three hundred zombies, <laughs> and nobody luckily had a heart attack. And then <laughs> most of the heart patients decided to join in, and they were extras too. So they yeah. ended up getting all make up up, and I think it was great because it it almost has a communal sense to it. It has mm-hmm. a let's all pull together and get something done kind of a, a vibe. For you know, to it, which is great. They actually also use a handful of amputees in the film. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for yeah, some yeah. Of Especially in the beginning when they were in the apartments. Mm-hmm. That's where you see a lot of the amputees right, yeah, right the, away. The super creepy guy that I mentioned uh, earlier. Yeah, because the, of the foot. Yeah, I, I remember that from the commentary track. It's like, yeah, this is an actual amputee. And it's like, you know, if I was an amputee, like being a zombie in a movie would just be a... Uh, like I can imagine, just feeling like, yeah, I got to, I got to do that. I, I, I wonder if that guy's still alive, and we could like interview him and be like, Shoot how do you feel about that? How do you feel Shoot about your, head. like your legacy in, in life is to be, you know, that zombie in that film. You know? Well, that's that's the funny thing though. Like a lot of those zombies, the ones that are still alive, like especially the ones with like a personality that everyone remembers, like the screwdriver zombie who gets, mm-hmm. you know, gets a screwdriver inside the, the head. Mm-hmm. He runs the fucking he runs the convention store. Like he he goes out and gives his autographs to people. He sells his autograph as the screwdriver zombie. Like a lot of and these actually, guys. Like actually, he's a he's a, a musician and a, yeah. a publicist and a, he's he does a lot of stuff, you know, too. Yeah, but these these guys all got like a like well, a second career. Um, this is a good a po- a point. You know, Night of Living Dead. Bill Heinzman. He mm-hmm. milked that his whole life. I mean, oh, did he movie. ever? Yeah, <laughs> the rest in peace. He is dead now. But uh, the flesh yeah. eater, he made the film where he uh, literally dressed up exactly the way he did in Night of the Living Dead. No one talks about Linda Blair, you know, in, in like Streets of Rage or whatever, when she had her tits out with Sybil Danning in a shower scene. Of course not. They just she's just milking the Exorcist the whole time, and we yeah. just were lucky enough to see her tits in that film. You know, what I mean? <laughs> so, you know but uh, that's there's a lot of people who milk things like that. So, yeah. But it, it's kind of cool, though, like, the, these these people, like, especially in their local area, they become, like, minor celebrities because they were that zombie in Dawn of the yeah. Dead, you know. Hey, no, that's awesome. I like yeah, the I local, like that. I mean, the, that's the thing is I like the local feel. That's why I like the, the rednecks getting together and doing something, and everything will escalate into a party at some point in time. But as film literate people, we kind of, like, get used to seeing certain scenes and movies, and we get used to kind of the idea that, like, oh, we're going to see, you know, kind of four main actors and then, you know, a handful of extras kind of milling about the background. And you look at a scene like the redneck scene in Dawn of the Dead, and there's just a bunch of different shots, a bunch of footage, a bunch of uh, kind of random people sitting around and talking. And it's very clear those aren't, like, professional actors. It's very clear that those are, you know, quote-unquote people. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that Romero had enough of a good relationship with the community that mm-hmm. he could just kind of like just ask people, hey, come out and be in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know it's low budget. I mean, he had a little bit of a budget, but not really. Like, So right. nobody's really getting paid. 
And I think it comes across in the film. I think that, you know, the, the scale of it, um, one of the things we mentioned yesterday when we were recording was uh, how definitely feels like a, an inexpensive movie, but at the same time, it's kind of amazing to get away with in this mm-hmm. movie in terms of, like, driving cars in the mall and driving uh, motorcycles in the mall and having, like, all these extras kind of wandering around with blood spatter and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I love you the know, fact that they actually got the real pagans to come in mm-hmm. and do a whole thing. You know, I mean, that's... I actually got asked to be one a long time ago. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, it wasn't for me, though. I, I'm too girly for that. Oh, you could have uh, been that yeah, pretty boy. You could have been that pretty boy one because the one with the Tommy gun was. He was exceptionally pretty. I'd have to yeah. tell you that. Because that 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 one with the the to- with the Tommy gun there, that that one peg in there, who doesn't really have any lines or anything. He, yeah. he he was actually like the sort of handler. He was the go between between Romero and his crew and the actual pagans. So. Yeah. And he was an exceptionally beautiful man, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, they even make a point of it on the. Uh, I think it's the. Uh, the the Italian cut on the Ultimate Edition where they have the uh, cast coming back to do their commentary or whatever, and uh, I think uh, they they make a point of talk. Look how pretty that guy is. Look how look how handsome he is. And yeah. And the and the other funny thing on that commentary is like they're expecting certain scenes to show up on the movie, and then and they're they like never... disappointed when they never show up. It's like, <laughs> hey, where's the scene where we're smoking cigarettes in the helicopter? That's not there. Where's no, the guy I, getting I his love head that chopped part. off? I love that. I love that part. You know the cigarette scene. Anybody got any cigarettes? You know that kind of thing. And no, yeah. no, so, man, we don't have any. Because you know, in, in the end, it's all about screw you. I want this for myself. You know, it doesn't matter really what. And of course, you know, we get the we get the infamous pre-road scene. The uh, in the extended version, you finally get to actually see Rhodes being starting to be a dick in a uniform. He's yeah. just built for being a dick in a uniform. That's what he's built. For. Well, if if you go by the fan theory that that is Rhodes, I, I I don't subscribe to that. I just you know they. Had I just say Joseph. I say I, I'm saying Rhodes because it's the same actor. But, yeah, I know. Uh, you know, I know it's but, nice to see him. I was like, oh, that's him. Yes, yes. Yeah, there's a correlation. Yeah, last night Daniel and I were sort of like to a little bit of the geekery where some of the fans go so obsessive that they're like tracking the movements of the different zombies and how. Some zombies couldn't possibly be here at this time, and some of the zombies would be dead after the initial call where they're cleaning the mall out and shit like that. Well, they were going to the island. <laughs> Any island. Yeah. Maybe they got maybe got to Plum Island, and they found yeah. out how to how to fix stuff. You know what I mean? There you go. Yeah. You get to Plum Island. That's where all the answers are. Yeah, you you could fan retcon all you want. I mean, you, you could say, oh, he's not really Captain Rhodes, but he, you know, he he kind of. Lied his way into it. At well, he could have been like Colonel Ives. Yeah. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Exactly, let's, yeah, let's, yeah. Let's wrap that up. Let's wrap this thing up. First episode. Yeah, we're we're kind of we're kind of bookending here as well, in a way, uh, mm-hmm. from episode 1 to 50, you know? So We're wrapping it up. We're wrapping yeah. it up. I like <laughs> it. Um, Dawn of the Dead has so many great things. It's such a roller coaster of emotions, though, because I'm super happy when I watch it. And then there's tension moments. Uh, George Romero was really hard on, on, on himself with some of the cuts, and he did not like when Steve was in the boiler room. And that's the real boiler room for them all, too. Yeah. But um, I think it's good. I mean, yeah, you could have added a little bit here and a little bit there. There was one scene where the, you see like the zombie's hand come out and then go right back. And I don't know if that was a miscut or whatever, but that cut, that little cut, and he's not there... That's enough to give you, you know, that build up, that build up for suspense. You know what I mean? It's, I think is, is they could have cut it a little bit more. They could have did this, but overall, I think it works pretty well. 
versus that. Bats. I mean, that that sequence works pretty well. Actually, we we didn't even mention it when we were talking last night, but like when he is in the. <laughs> when he's in the uh, room there, the room with the with the pl- with the schematics of the mall, it's got all the right. keys and shit. You can actually see in the gla- in the glass in the background. You can actually walking see the zombie through. walking through, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and that's pretty effective, sort of a build up. Like, oh, it's out there lurking. The only hokey part is when he shoots, and the bullet is like. I like the the ricochet. Literally, you're in a room full of metal and and cement. It's going to ricochet. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I think think he might might have overused that a little bit. It could have... Well, it's cartoony in the same way that, you know, the the zombies on the escalator are are a little bit cartoony. And it speaks to uh, Romero's kind of point of making the film is, you know, we're going to do this combination of pretty aggressive gore with uh, the satire and this kind of broad comedy in, in mm-hmm. certain sequences. And uh, I think that ultimately that's how I feel about those sequences. And uh, I get that it's not one thing. Like, for me, those sequences are a little bit like I'm just kind of waiting for the point. Like, it's almost like I'd almost rather that just kind of be cut entirely and move on to the mall and kind of doing the the other things. But at the same time, I think it's really, really effectively done. Yeah, so, I uh, like it. You know. yeah, Again, big, big... I like it. I, I like that it's in the yeah. film. But, but at the same time, been, like, you, you could just cut it completely. You know, and, and it still would have been a good film. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, and, yeah. And I, and I think there is this thing of, um, and this is kind of my final thoughts on the film after, sorry, you, I'm not trying no, to talk too much, but uh, this, we'll Lee, use and I talk, Lee and I talked for like two hours last night, so... I, <laughs> no, 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 this is, the, the film's two hours, so we need to be at least four. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, we're good. I, I'm don't be, don't be, let's be professional about this. It is interesting that there are uh, so many different cuts of this film just because they all kind of work. And uh, we're so used to, especially in horror, like, oh, you got to get this cut or that cut, and, you know, this cut works so much better. But with Dawn of the Dead, it feels like all of them just kind of work. They might work differently. They might work on different levels. But I think it speaks to Romero as a filmmaker, and it speaks to the idea of the film and the concept of the film, that pretty much all of these cuts more or less work, and yeah. that, you know, even yeah. though we might have references as to what we would or wouldn't like to see in the film, mm-hmm. nobody really has anything bad to say. Like, it's yeah. it's kind of astonishing to I me. I think it's, that is funny. Film. It's like, there, the cuts are personal. You have have you ever mind. met anybody who is like, yeah, Dawn of the Dead, that's a piece of shit? No. Nobody. No, never, 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 not. Nobody. Yeah, it's like, it's like, like, well, I really like the more gore. Well, this is the cut for you. Well, I like a little more satire. Well, this is the cut for you. I mean, there's a cut for everybody. It's more I mean, a... there there are people that hate Citizen Kane. You know, there are oh, people sorry. that hate there are people that hate everything. But Dawn of the Dead, I've never seen anybody that hates Dawn of the Dead. No, and that what? that speaks to the film. Ultimately. Yeah, one of the one of the greatest parts is when they realize that they have all this food and all this thing, and they go shopping and stuff. I mean, it's a, Oh, well, hello? You want about this? How about Mancha? You know, I love that. I mean, like, it's just... <laughs> yeah, that, that little that little dick joke there. Like, oh, I got this little salami here. I got the bigger one, bitch. I'm the black Mancha. man. <laughs> you know, I, I just, it's, it's. I mean, I watching, watching, um, watching uh, Roger enjoy those cherries. 
Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, like, it just, like, it makes me feel so good. It makes me feel happy. I actually get joy out of watching those scenes. Of course, Galen, I don't know if she. this is how she actually speaks, but she did the quintessential Western PA. She shouldn't have because she's supposed to be from fucking Philly. And she did the quintessential Western PA slang. Well, uh, dialect, I guess. She mispronounced roof. Oh, yeah, she, yeah, uh, roof. <laughs> Steven, let's get on the roof. Yeah. It's not roof. <laughs> You freaking Western PA retard. It's not pop. It's soda. And it's not roof. Roof. It's roof. And it's not crick. It's creek. I'm that's, sorry. That's, that's funny. On. Actually, I was I was watching like a couple of clips there. Like I was it's just sort of grabbed a couple of clips that I'm going to like stick into the uh, final of edit of the podcast and everything. And I was watching I was like, she's saying roof like really weird. <laughs> yeah, no, no. That's, that's a Western PA thing. It's yeah. Ohio instead of Ohio. And uh, roof, uh, roof, roof. I'm like, are you dog? Are you wolfing at me? What, what's going on? <laughs> roof, 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 roof. It's roof. What's what's wrong with you people? Yeah, and my my family comes from Western PA in Pittsburgh. You know, Mahonga Hill, Pittsburgh. So I'm a see. That's the other thing is my ancestry goes right to the area, Monroeville. You know, Western Moreland. You know, that kind of Washington. So I'm totally into this film. I'm into all the George Romero stuff. So. And I just know the the, the slang and all, the, the dialect. I'm like, you're not doing it right. You're not speaking English. <laughs> and I yell at her. I yell at her when she says it. I yell. At uh, but speaking of the cuts, what what is your sort of favorite cut of this film, though, Paul? Have you seen My, all the versions? I have 126 at the house. I think it's 126. And. Yeah. Um, that's the theatrical one, yeah. Yeah, and that's my the one I watch all the time. But they cut out Galen being sick because she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. They cut out Rhodes, uh, his when you see him there. They cut out. I'm trying to think of some. They cut out a few helicopter scenes, I think. I think it's some of the violence. I think like some of the scenes are shorter with like the uh, screwdriver yeah. zombie and stuff like that. Like you don't see as much blood and everything. But this is the way I think about all movies. I want to see what the director did. I want the full cut. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, if if I don't like it, I just want to see it. But my hmm. my favorite still is the the the, the full uncut. You it's on YouTube. You guys can watch it on YouTube. It's the full uncut Dawn of the Dead. And honestly, it goes by just as quick as any of the other cuts. The Cinder Mall hours cut? That cut, is that what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. The, like, two and a half hour cut? Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that cut. I like that cut a lot. I, I actually, that was the one I watched for this podcast because I had never watched it before, and that might okay. be my favorite cut of the film. Honestly. And it's my favorite cut. Yeah, it has. Yeah, to be. We, were, we were saying that that's the fan edit, eh? That that's the one that takes all the sort of alternate scenes and the other two cuts that you don't see and sticks them into the theatrical cut, essentially. I have the Dario Argento cut too. Mm-hmm. But um, unfortunately, my friend sent it to me in Region Two. <laughs> region Two, yet again. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. yeah. So. But, I love the uh, fact that you said that. I have the Dario Argento cut too, as if you're confiding a secret. You know, yeah, like, yeah, like, well, leaning in like I, I also, I also have the Dario Argento. Well, cut. the problem was I can't have my full-on Goblin goodness because uh, it's Region Two. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that is the one that has most of the Goblin soundtrack. Um, and you know what? I mean, people will malign that cut and. I will say personally, it is my least favorite cut of the film. But at the same time, it still works really well as an action film. Like it works really, really well as an action film. Like well, that's the problem with that cut is because of the censors in in Europe. Mm-hmm. 
Well, he, he cut it for a specific audience, and then, of course, when it went out to, like, Germany and other places like that, then it even got cut down even more. So, mm-hmm. like, there's some really shortcuts of this film out there. Germany um, Germany's a strange bird. Let's just say that. They're very, I've been, sen- I've very been, sensitive. I've been in, uh, in, uh, I've been in Germany... And uh, when I was there, they just legalized Halloween two. Mm-hmm. They just legalized Halloween two, and I think I think they just legalized uh, Evil Dead. Yeah, they they uh, they're even worse than like the sort of video nasties list in England. Like they're even more like repressed in that in that sense. Like a lot yeah. of the a lot of that stuff just doesn't fly. Um, I mean, anything that has any sort of Nazi symbols or any sort of allusion to that, then it's just, like, verboten, like, right yeah, across the board. Yeah, exactly, well, yeah. If we had a president that killed six million Jews, I think we'd be a little sensitive, too. Like, I'm well, just gonna, we still have Japanese stuff. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> well, at least we didn't kill six million Japanese people. That we know of. That we know <laughs> of. Yeah. My, my favorite Pat kind of still... Pat Marie is going to fix this right Pat now. Marita's, Pat Marie's not going to fix anything because he's dead. No, Pat Marie's <laughs> going to come back. And Pat Marita and Abe Vigoda are going to work together. Not Abe Vigoda, <laughs> no, please. Not Abe Vigoda. No, uh, no. Poor Abe Vigoda. I can't handle this. He died so young. Poor Abe. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, uh, my, my favorite cut is the sort of U.S. cut. Like I, I, I think it just flows really well, but I, I'm glad I had the other cut so I can just go back and see the scenes that I'm missing from that one. It's and a joy to actually listen to the to the commentary. Actually, after you really get into the film, it's a joy to listen to them talking mm-hmm. about it. It's not so much when they sh- kind of shit on some of the scenes that you really like, <laughs> because because it's it the un- unfortunately thing about artistry, it's you hate everything you do. Yeah, well, it's yeah. it's and, and to be fair, it's mostly Savini, and you yeah. know Savini apparently is kind of a prick in real life, so you know fuck him. But I met him twice, and he was a prick twice. Yeah. Like he, you know, he talks about how he was so like pissed off that the makeup didn't quite look good and the blood looked like fucking melted crayons and shit like that. Mm-hmm. And Romero was like, "That's what I'm going for. I'm going for this comic book aesthetic anyway, so it kind of works really well." So yeah, you know. they got this. Uh, they got a blood from a certain company and it had this kind of neon hue to it or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm like, but that makes it. That that makes it so we're not. It's it's it, it makes it let it less elitist. In a way, because anybody can watch it, like it's easier for people to t- to take it, so more people can enjoy it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That's the way it is. I mean, there's like you know the Jim Van Bieber stuff and stuff like that, where you know not a lot of people can watch that stuff. That's why it's cult. For the other reason, even if you try to watch it, you just go mm, no and turn mm-hmm. it off. You know what I mean? But the Dawn of the Dead has this 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 humor, this satire, this political movement, the sexist movement, the the horror movement, the the and an almost like comical movement of of the blood and the gore and the gags and this and that and and you, you have pagans slapping pies in people's faces. <laughs> I mean, for God's sakes! I mean, isn't I mean, that, really, uh, that's all you need for a great film. They you have pies and pies in people's faces. That's and, it. And and seltzer bottles. You know. They have this. The, I'm like, you have a seltzer bottle and you're spraying yeah. zombies in the face with a seltzer bottle. And then the and then when the zombies overrun them, that great gag where the the guy with the fucking Mexican hat oh, yeah, yeah. in the he, fucking he blood gets, tester machine. He gets the blood tester. Yeah. 
the guy just had to do the blood tester thing. He couldn't couldn't leave until he did that. Oh, and, then he oh, and the guy the guy with the great fake facial hair that gets his guts yep. ripped out. <laughs> I, all, I always on. I always appreciate a great fake facial hair. Yeah. And I'll the guts of course, and, and the guts of course were like from a local slaughterhouse, so they were like authentic like pig guts or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. And but yeah. they weren't the, they, was they, weren't the the same? they weren't the on the de- the day of the dead guts that got accidentally unrefrigerated for three days. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. <laughs> was it was it night the same way where they, they actually use like real like entrails mm-hmm. and shit? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Can we do night for a hundred? I'd love to do night for a hundred. Yeah, well, we could there do night go. for a hundred. Sure. We could do like a seventeen-hour night. Let's do it. <laughs> we, we we would be like you know, twenty-eight days later or whatever. No, no, that's not it. That thirty days of night. We will do thirty days of night. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Dawn of the Dead, um, to me, is is a great film. It has a lot of different characters, and the atmosphere it gives is great because you have. You have hope, you have despair, you have you have all the different things working with you. Like I said before, it was a high, it's it's always highs and lows. There's highs and lows through the whole film, so you never get monotoned by emotion. You know what I mean? You're always a ride. Galen just kind of ruins it every time, but she's a realist. But at the same time, they want to have this this life still. It's the hanging on to humanity that I think is the real heart-wrencher in the film, too, because Steve, he wants a marriage. You know, he wants something. He wants, you know, you're going to have the baby, you know, this and that, and they just hold on to it, and she just kind of refuses, even though she tries to have her own fun. I mean, I like that. I like watching Galen try to have her own little moments in the sun, which I'm sure Lee liked a lot yeah. in the well, in you, the, in you, the makeup room. Yeah, you can tell that Steven and, and uh, Fran are not going to work. You, you can you can tell that relationship isn't destined to last, even if there wasn't a zombie apocalypse going on, right? Right. Because um, he, he just has these certain notions of, like, I'm going to be the big man, I'm going to protect you, but in really, reality he's an inept kind of dork who who's not going to ever, like, you know, I think he probably got into being a pilot as a, Sort of uh, almost kind of a safety blanket for himself. Like, oh, I'll be this Burt Reynolds type guy. And it's like, no, you're really not that guy. You're mm-hmm. kind of unsure of yourself and you're inept. And mm-hmm. Fran definitely is not going to be told what to do. She's definitely a person who wants to be an equal and in actually in the conversation. So she's not going to let a bunch of guys talk about, well, maybe maybe we'll get her to abort it. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> she, ain't, she ain't fucking well, settling for that. The thing is, though, like Ken Forhees' character played that really well. I mean, he was he was very frank. And the thing is about military people, they're really to the point. I like that. It's like, do you want to board it? Like, do you? Because I can. I know how. But if not, I don't care. We we were saying well, he's very uh, pragmatic. Like he's he's he, he is logical almost to a fault. Like he well you know, he he, he yeah, is at times. But the thing is, they all been legal for six years. Like let's yeah. keep that in mind. Yeah. That that is is a definitely definitely a thing, but military people I know know how to do things like that. So I mean that was just one of those deals. We can we can give it and we can make it go away and we can do what we can do. And I think that he handled it well in the movie because he didn't say, "Well, you better." You know what I mean? He does. Do you want to? Because if you want to, that's the way it can go. This and that. And he was almost asking in a way of, in my eyes, he asked in a way of, "Did you talk about it?" 
Like, yeah. do you, what do you want? You know what I mean? Like, not did you, like, you make the decision because you're the man. I didn't get that out of that. It was more of something different. It was very opening at the beginning to see him kind of understand the idea of of what's going on. And, and it did hit uh, Ken Forhey's character when he was in the, the, the basement, watching everybody around him being zombies, and he's slowly, methodically t- killing everybody, like, mm-hmm. just trying to go in. He just kept on shooting and shooting, and the tear goes down. You know, it, it really opens up his character and shows up. Well, yeah, you can definitely on. see, like, he, he's not he's not fucking... He's not Spock. He's not cold and emotionless, like, but he is a very practical man. You can see it, like, early on in the helicopter scene, uh, depending <laughs> on what cut you watch, where he's talking to Fran, mm-hmm. and he's like, I just want to know who everybody is. Uh, you know, I yeah. just want to know where everyone stands. Is that guy your man? What's going mm-hmm. on? So I know all the relationships. Is and he then, your man most of the time? Yeah, most most of the time. Well, and, and, and if you are an African-American man in 1978, like having a very uh, clear understanding of who the people around you are, all these white people, like who are mm-hmm. you? Are yeah. you are you racist? Are you uh, yeah. classist? Are you... I mean, it's realistic. And in, in a, in a, in a really uh, what I think is a almost prescient way. In Almost in a but in a human way, you want to know no, no, who's no, no, around. No, 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 no. I mean, I, I don't want to. I mean, obviously Romero. I mean, everybody who listens to this podcast knows that I'm the political guy. I will talk about the politics all day long. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the earlier bits, you heard me talk about the politics, and so that's fine. I didn't. You well, will. You didn't, but you oh. will if you okay. listen. Which oh. you will, but it's oh. fine. Maybe I can't hear it. Fast forward. <laughs> just open up Audacity and play it at like high speed. You know, you're just, yeah, yeah. I'll sound like a chipmunk. Um, but but it is it is good. Like depending on what cut you see, uh, there there is an extra little sequence in the helicopter, and he says, "I lost a couple brothers," and then she asks him, "Street brothers or real brothers?" No. And, like, and then he's like a little from both, and two two real brothers, and. Yeah, you see the humanity there. Like there, there is a little bit of nice little character work there from the actors. And again, like we were talking about, uh, Dan and I were talking about last night. Romero lets the actors actually pretty much bring up their own sort of uh, characters from the script. He's not so much interested himself in writing characters. So I, I kind of feel like those bits kind of that that sort of humanity actually comes from the yeah, acting. It does, it, yeah, it does come from the acting quite a bit. All right, so Paul, anything else you wanna you wanna bring up or mention or? Uh... Do you feel like sort of coming to a bit of a conclusion here on, on your thoughts? Well, on the thoughts right now, um, did you guys talk about the different cuts and music and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. With the, yep. uh, the gun shop and stuff, uh, did you talk uh, about the, uh, the gun we, shop actually not being in the mall? No, we didn't mention that part. Uh, that That is oh, true. Those... You amateurs. <laughs> I tell you. Well, the gun shop is, is the gun shop is one of my favorite scenes, and I actually really enjoy the jungle music, the muzak, as they like to say, that they put over everything. And uh, the gun shop is actually about thirty miles away that they used. Mm-hmm. Have but, you been to that gun shop? No, I haven't, Mister Man. Why not? Um, I, I will be. Well, see, the thing is, you can't have too many guns, so you have a very good point. Um, I should go to that if it's still open. Actually, that's the good. That's the best point. Um, one of the one of the funnest uh, for me, the more fun or funnest or whatever words correct uh, scene in that is actually when Galen is actually in in the actual mix of things. 
and she's going through and trying to shut the doors. And I'm surprised no one got burned by those torches, by the way. The, the <laughs> acetylene torches, I'm really mm-hmm. surprised no one got burned. But uh, watching her having the nun stuck in the door. Yeah. Just that kind of thing. And then the, the guy with the baseball mitt yes. just slouching down and looking at her. I, I want to write... I haven't done it yet, but I want to write down that garage and, and Google it and see if I can find information about the garage. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to look at everybody's shirts and, and like, figure out, like, all the places that, that have been there and go watch and go try to find historical pictures or whatever of everything that's in the movie. Because everything in the movie... The movie itself, the way the way it shows, the way the way you see things, it's almost like a time capsule because you get to see things that weren't there anymore. And being a Pennsylvanian, I'm all about that. I want to go see every little detail that's in the film. If you look at the scene where you got this by the ass, where they go, <laughs> actually, it's really funny because you go from like almost like a, a supermodel girl to uh, one of the Tom Salvini or something like that. One of the yeah, the, the actors going his, back and forth. The, the girl in the checkered shirt is like his. It was his assistant for the makeup or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then when they do the shot where uh, where uh, Peter hold shoots you, her in the head, hold your head up, man. Yeah, then 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 it's uh, Tom Savini in a mask. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And you can actually see the I mean, when you see the body fly back, you can actually see the padding and stuff like the crash padding in his under, under his shirt and shit. It's like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, that's not quite that. Slim, athletic-looking woman zombie that was there a minute ago. <laughs> right. If you look at the uh, the part where the two trucks come down the hill, there's a hill that goes towards the mall, mm-hmm. and it's kind of funny because you see all the zombies staying out of the truck's way, like, oh, no way. You know what yeah. I mean? They all stay in a nice coordinated area. If you look behind that, there's a little mini mall, like a strip mall. If you see in the background. The one store at the very end became a guitar center after a while, and I bought a, I have my guitar from there. Nice. <laughs> I bought my guitar that I make my music now from the mall that the, from the part from Dawn of the Dead. So that that was cool. that was a guitar center at some point in time. So I bought a guitar from there. There's there's also the infamous little uh, for for the the real film nerds who like to like pause the film and like watch it frame by frame. There there's the one stunt that uh, Savini and them were doing with the. Uh, with the trucks hitting them, there's the one where you can, if you for a millisecond, you can see the trampoline that they're bouncing off when, right, when they get right. hit by the truck. Yep. Yep. Yeah, when it was almost looks like they're gonna go back and hit that like newsstand thing or whatever mm-hmm. that newsstand post or whatever, right, right in front of the mall. Um, the mall itself is very interesting because if you go in the main entrances that I go into, you actually go into the second floor. You don't go in the first. Okay. It's not like your conventional two-story mall where you go into the first floor and then you high-rise to the second. It's actually you go into the second floor and then you go down to the first. So the movie, in sense, made it reverse. Hmm. If the movie, the movie, in sense, made it that you come into the ground floor and the second floor is protected, but that's not actually how it works. No, really. You actually go into the second floor from the ground, the, from the parking lot level that you see in the mall. I do enjoy when they when they fly over the mall and they say, you know, what is this? You know what I mean? That they yeah. don't know, but that's one of the first major malls in the in America. Mm-hmm. I think King of Prussia might have been first before that, and that's in Pennsylvania near Philly. You know what I mean? So okay. this is one of the first main malls. It's actually I park in the same parking lot that they swooped into. So the first swoop that you see is the parking lot I always park at. And if you walk into the vestibule, you walk into the unchanged part of the mall before you get to the main section. 
Nice. But it's actually the second floor. So it's, it's part of the part of the movie that's actually untrue to the film. Much like if you watch Groundhog Day. By the way, Punxsutawney does not look like that. <laughs> you know, I've been there. Um, it's it's just one of those things that that movie magic uh, it plays with your mind a little bit. So it's pretty yeah. interesting. Dawn of the Dead is. Let me just wrap up here because I am babbling. But Dawn of the Dead is definitely a film that is very personal to me as a Pennsylvanian, as a horror movie guy, as a you know, Romero f- film fan. And uh, it's a pleasure watching it, and it's a pleasure talking to you. So thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, great. I'm glad we actually managed to get you uh, for the second night here so we can actually stick it in the podcast. So that's awesome because we didn't want to leave you out. So For for me, it's just really nice to get that like personal perspective, that like mm-hmm. tangible material perspective on this film. And I and I and I really knew Paul would bring that, and uh, that was why I was like, no, 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 I can be here for this. Because normally I'd be like, yeah, yeah, Paul's gonna do his thirty minutes talking about the film. I'll listen to it later. But like, I really wanted to, to listen and chat. No, thanks, thanks, thanks a lot. It's nice. So um, sorry, I've I should have just not talked at all during this section. But, uh, Put it in. Put it I in. couldn't. I couldn't not uh, talk over Paul. Really, that was kind of the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. I mean, you had to have that opportunity. Uh, but Paul, tell us where they can people can find you on the interweb. Well, uh, YouTube. You can find me at PA Brew News and Funeral Dust Six Six Six. One for beer, one for metal. Facebook PA Brew News and Facebook Back Mountain Arts and Crafts. Right on, and su- support Back Mountain Art and Arts and Crafts because. That's Paul and his wife uh, doing some nice little uh, craft stuff and trying to earn a couple extra bucks. And So there you go. Yep. Yeah. i got to make money somehow. Okay, and uh, we will uh, now return to our regularly scheduled program with uh, me and Dan and uh, end off the podcast. Uh, so there we go. So I mean, if if people hadn't realized already from you know even starting following this podcast from the very beginning, we all love this film, and I hope we uh, brought something a little bit new to the table uh, for you to listen to. Uh, it was it was kind of a daunting task, just like when we were approaching M last week. Uh, you know, it's like what what else can you say about the fucking film that hasn't been said? But um, fuck it, we we wanted to geek out about it and have a little fun, so that's what we did. And if you don't like it, don't fucking listen to it. Your money back. Yeah, your money back, bitches. Uh, so, Daniel, tell us where uh, people can find you on the old interweb. Talk, talk about your podcast. Sure. Well, uh, I have a uh, Doctor Who podcast, and uh, those of you who have been listening for 50 episodes, I'm sure I already know this, but you can find it at OISpaceman. That's OISpaceman.libsyn.com. That's all one word. I do it with my wife. We do classic and new series. Uh, this weekend, we're recording our Series 9 wrap-up conversation. We've got a guest on for that. And I think in a couple of weeks, uh, Lee's going to come on, and we're going to talk about some Peter Davison, uh, That's right. uh, Peter Davison story. So uh, look forward to that. Hopefully, uh, Lee will retweet that or whatever when that shows mm-hmm. up. Um, uh, if you do want to follow me on Twitter, uh, you can find me at Daniel Lee Harper. So check Right on. Yeah, you can find all of uh, – you just listen to the trailer at the end. You'll find all of our links to Podbean, iTunes, Twitter – all that stuff, you find all that stuff, leave us comments, leave us ratings, definitely re- leave us uh, sort of reviews and stuff on iTunes, you know, give us five stars, give us a review, uh, that sort of helps get us out to people, uh, get more and more viewers, I know we have a lot of viewers now, I know we have a lot of repeat viewers, please leave us comments, leave us comments, questions, suggestions for movies, don't be shy, you can talk to us, uh, we're not that tell abrasive. Us really? Yeah, tell, you know. tell us how much we suck, yeah. Tell us how much Paul sucks. You know. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, we, we, we definitely want 
feedback. We, we want to interact with the viewers. Uh, it'll just make this a lot better, a lot more fun. And uh, what, next week it's going to be what? The Long Goodbye, I believe it is? The Long Goodbye. Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. Yeah. Uh, from 1973. That's what we're doing next week. And until then, uh, I'll give everyone out there listening a short goodbye. Uh, thank you, Daniel, for joining me tonight. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks a lot for having me. Cheers. Yeah. Goodbye.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. To see the host's other stuff, as well as links to websites and podcasts of similar interest, and as well to leave comments, questions, movie requests, and other suggestions, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. From there, you can also find us on iTunes. You got this, man. You got this by the ass.